Hi, I'm Edwin Samuelson, and welcome to the commentary for 42nd Street Forever, the Blu-ray edition. I am the host of The Cinephiles, which can be checked out at youtube.com forward slash cinephiles, which is C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. I also run avmaniacs.com. Today I'm joined by two of my favorite partners in crime for yet another reunion of the 42nd Street Forever gang. Sitting to my left is Mr. Michael Gingold of Fangoria Magazine, fangoria.com, and occasional screenwriter and filmmaker. And Chris Pajali of Temple of Schlock, www.templeofschlock.blogspot.com. First trailer we're looking at is uh, Black Samson, uh, which is a 70s exploitation film released by Warner. The man you see right here is Rocky Tarkington, who could have actually been a very big star. He uh, was cast in Enter the Dragon and was flown out on location, but because of some kind of dispute, was, re was replaced on the set with Jim Kelly, which of course led Jim Kelly to a very long career in films such as uh, Black Belt Jones, Hot Potato, Golden Needles, and Three the Hard Way. Um, sadly, Mr. Tarkin didn't have much of a career after this. He appeared in some other films, but uh, it's a shame that he wasn't able to really become a star. As you could see in this film, he has a very good personality, charisma, and this is a black exploitation film that tries to mix in martial arts. Uh, during the early 70s, uh, martial arts films are very popular in the urban audience, you know, the ur urban cities and things, and so the studios decided to uh, combine them with a black action hero, and this is one of the films. Uh, also starring in this film is Carol Speed, who's made numerous appearances in many black exploitation classics, including Abby, the black exploitation version of The Exorcist, which is phenomenal. Uh, maybe Mr. Bajali, a big fan of that one. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, has not really been seen. She's also in the Mac, and she wrote a great book on her experiences in Hollywood called Inside Black Hollywood. Um, she also served uncredited as an a consultant on Jackie Brown. Well, like Edwin said, uh, this was released by Warner Brothers, uh, which is strange because it was produced by Daniel Cady, who uh, before this had done a lot of adults-only films, uh, also had produced some horror films, like uh, very low-budget horror films, like Grave of the Vampire. With uh, William Smith, who we saw there. Right, yeah, uh, William Smith. Uh, actually, William Smith was supposed to be an Enter the Dragon, too. He was the original choice to play Roper. Uh, which was later was John Saxon. John, Saxon. Right, John Saxon's part. So uh, you got a little team up there. And the music was done by Alan Toussaint, who's kind of synonymous with New Orleans funk. So it was interesting to hear his music uh, over a film shot entirely in Los Angeles. But uh, what's also interesting about the choice of having Toussaint do the music for Black Samson was that uh, it came in between two high-profile big hits that he produced. Uh, the first one being Right Place, Wrong Time by Dr. John. And, uh, and then after Black Samson, he did uh, Lady Marmalade by LaBelle. And here's Savage, a Filipino film uh, from New World Pictures. Probably uh, one of the best films done by Sirio Santiago, who is a Filipino filmmaker who did a whole bunch of movies for Corman uh, throughout the 70s, I guess, and into the 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, the lead in this, well, this is Carol Speed again, who we just saw in Black Samson. Uh, the lead in this film was James Eaglehart, who had been in uh, a couple of Russ Meyer movies, uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and The Seven Minutes. Uh, and, and he did a few Santiago films after this. Uh, he was in one that Santiago produced called Bamboo Gods and Iron Med Men, and then he did uh, one after that called Death Force. Uh, Carol Speed had gone to the Philippines a few times in the early 70s, so she had been in The Big Birdcage. 
after this, she did the Mac, as Edwin pointed out, and also Abby, and she's in the Disco Godfather with Rudy Ray Moore. Uh, big Put surprise. Your weight on it. Right. Put your right. weight on it. Put your weight on it. Put your it. weight on it. Sorry. Uh, the the uh, other star, the other one of one of the other co-stars in this, uh, who we see right here with the knife, is uh, Leda Edmund Jr., who was in the original production of Bye Bye Birdie, uh, and she is also in uh, Active Vengeance slash Rape Squad, uh, which we'll be talking about in a little bit. Uh, this, I think, was the first New World movie that John Soley did the poster art for. And he did uh, many of their posters after that, including TNT Jackson, Big Bad Mama, Death Race 2000, uh, Crazy Mama, etc., etc. And um, a lot of the movies that were produced in the Philippines had vague kind of revolutionary undertones. This one is probably, I would say, one of the most explicit in being about political revolution. Mm. It's about Eagleheart's character kind of being converted to the cause and... Uh, and fighting the good fight against the man, as it were. Mm. Here we have Kenner, which uh, was shot in Bombay in 1967, not released until 1969, uh, March of 69, by MGM. Uh, it was originally titled The Year of the Cricket, and uh, it, it you can't really tell by this trailer here, but it was a, a G-rated film that uh, was kind of aimed at young audiences. Um, Jim Brown plays a character named... As you can named... see from this scene. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> Jim Brown plays a character named Kenner, who's in India seeking revenge for the death of his business partner, uh, who's actually... Uh, the killer is played by a stuntman named Charles Horvath. Uh, but while he's there, he befriends a little boy named Saji, and uh, Saji's mother, Anasuya, uh, played by Madeline Rue, uh, becomes Kenner's lover. Uh, the original title, like I said, was Year of the Cricket, and it's named that because Saji has a pet cricket. And there's a fight scene on a roof uh, with Charles Horvath in which uh, their fight is intercut with a cricket fight, a cricket match, or not a cricket match. But as, a, a, as opposed to the British yeah. cricket match, <laughs> right. it's a literal cricket match. <laughs> yes. How do crickets fight? <laughs> I don't know. You'll have to see the movie to find out. <laughs> Uh, this was directed by uh, Steve Seckley, who did Day of the Triffids and Revenge of the Zombies, uh, the John Carradine film. Uh, he was a Hungarian filmmaker. Uh, Jim Brown had done a number of action films for MGM, uh, including The Dirty Dozen, Dark of the Sun, The Split, Ice Station Zebra, and Tick, Tick, Tick. Uh, and here we have a Florida shot black exploitation film called The Guy from Harlem from 1977. Uh, this was directed by Rene Martinez Jr., who had made a softcore biker movie with Carol Connors and Jack Birch called Road of Death a few years before this. Uh, he had been partners with a producer named Joseph Fink, who had done some of William Griffey's early films like Sting of Death and Death Curse of Tartu. Uh, they produced this film and a few others, and then uh, Joseph Fink died of, uh, I believe, a brain tumor. And uh, Martinez went on to do this film and, and another miserable uh, <laughs> film called Super Soul Brother. Uh, ah, yes, the great Super Soul Brother with Wild Man Steve. Yes, well, Wild Man Steve is in this one also uh, in a supporting role, uh, but then he became a lead uh, for the uh, for the second film. Is he comic relief in this, or is he does he play a straight role? Ah, uh, you know, I don't remember. Um, I, I think he's funny in both. Where he tries to be anyway. <laughs> whether whether he is, he is debatable. Yeah, right. He's the super soul brother. <laughs> and here we have Welcome Home Brother Charles. Speaking of movies with soul in the title, this one actually, it got a certain amount of notoriety after it was reissued under the title Soul Vengeance. 
which has a little more, the, with the vengeance in the title, has a little more to do with uh, probably the most, let's just say, striking element of the story, uh, which involves... Well, Eddie, you had a name for it? Magic Johnson. <laughs> that, that's a pretty good suggestion. Um, basically, well, Chris, you, uh, you can pick this one up, I guess. Well, this was, uh, this was one of three films Fanaka made while he was a student at UCLA. This was his first feature, and he made it as an undergraduate. Uh, he then uh, went on to do MMA, which was his master's thesis film and then he did penitentiary also uh, as uh, as a i think as a as a thesis film as well i mean he just stayed in, at ucla for most of the 70s because he said it was the easiest way to make films i would love to know what the uh, staff thought of this one when they saw it <laughs> the the uh, academic staff when they were grading this i wonder what his grade was on this particular student project well, you know, not only was he the first black filmmaker to get an AFI grant, but I think he has to be the uh, the only film student to have had to have shot three student films and, and have had all three of them released theatrically. Yeah, I mean, all all three of these played all over the United States, um, and without Jack H. Harris's input, I guess. Yes, we're yeah. going to get to Dark Star, similar case later on. Well, this went out through Crown International, MMA went out through Pro International, and Penitentiary, which was his big breakthrough film was a Jerry Gross release. Uh, Fanaka's real name is Walter Gordon. Uh, he was born in Jackson, Mississippi. He changed his name while at UCLA. Uh, in Swahili, it means through brotherhood and togetherness, we will progress and succeed. Uh, he just went into the library one day and picked up a, a Swahili dictionary and picked out Jamaa, which means family, brotherhood, and togetherness, and Fanaka, which means progress and success. And he said, yeah, you know, that sounds good. I'll call myself Jamaa Fanaka. Uh, it's funny, this, this would made the cover of Box Office Magazine uh, in one issue in 1975, and there was an article about it when it was uh, picked up for, uh, when it was acquired by Crown International. And, and then it was never reviewed by any of the trades. I mean, there's no variety review, no box office review. I think I, that's one reason. Well, you, you can get a glimpse here of uh, just what the, uh, the soul vengeance involves. We, yeah. we won't spoil the details here, just uh, see for yourself. Mm -hmm. But... Um, I think it was, uh, there were no reviews at the time, and I think it was only when it came out on video that people really yeah. started to notice it, and, and it started to achieve a certain amount of notoriety. I mean, you'd think that a movie like this that played all over the country would have made some sort of an impact, you would have heard about it, but I mean, it, it played throughout 1975 and into 76, and then Crown re-released it in 1980. On a, a triple bill with Satan's Slave and Kung Fu Mama. I have an ad. I still have that yeah. ad in my collection. But even then, I mean, Sleazoid Express didn't review it. Gore Gazette didn't review it. I don't think they were around at that point. But, I mean, none of the zines covered it either. It wasn't until the late 80s when it came out on video as Soul Vengeance that word got out that, that this was a really strange uh, and interesting film. I, I like the movie. And then, of course, after Penitentiary, that, that kind of became his, uh, his meal ticket because... Mm -hmm. Penitentiary was a huge hit, and he went on to do a couple of sequels, uh, at least one of which was backed by the Cannon Group. This, uh, this film was shot partially in, and MMA also, his second film, were shot in the old Lincoln Heights jail in L.A., uh, which is where Penitentiary was shot. And uh, later, when we talk about Van Nuys Boulevard, there's a scene in that that was shot in the Lincoln Heights jail as well. Uh, the courtroom scene in this movie was shot in the Compton Courthouse. And uh, Charles Burnett was the camera operator. Really? Uh, welcome home, Brother Charles, yeah. Went on to a, a big career of his own. Mm -hmm. He's brutal. Okay, uh, here we have a Fred Williamson film. They call him Boss, Boss, now ah. I'm not going to say... Napkin. <laughs> uh, this was uh, made in 1974, released in 1975. 
Um, despite you know the violence that we're seeing here, uh, it was rated PG and released by Dimension Pictures. Fred Williamson wrote it, and it was directed by Jack Arnold, who had done a lot of westerns uh, prior to this, uh, such as the Audie Murphy western, uh, No Name on the Bullet. Though, of course, he's probably best known for his science fiction films, uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon probably being the very best of those. But um, he's one of a few uh, directors of uh, different genre films in the 50s and 60s who went on to do uh, black exploitation in the 70s. Right, he did Black Eye also with Fred Williamson, which was uh, made uh, the year before this. Um, Eddie made sort of a reference to the theme song uh, for this movie, which was by Terrible Tom. Who uh, th This was a single that was released on the We Produce label, which was a subsidiary of Stax Records. As far as I know, Terrible Tom never released an actual album. And what's so interesting, too, is this is not Fred Williamson's only uh, entry into uh, Western films. He also did The Legend of Nigger Charlie, The Soul of Nigger Charlie, and he also wrote and directed a film with Richard Pryor called Adios Amigos, which uh, Richard Pryor has gone on record as, and apologized numerous times for how bad it was. But it's not that bad. Well, it's interesting. I remember this was, uh, Adios Amigo was one of those cases on um, at the movies where when Siskel and Ebert got to their Dog of the Week segment, they said, well, we went to this movie thinking it would be a dog, but it actually turned out to be pretty decent. And I recall that Adios Amigo was one of those films. Uh, Williamson also was in uh, Take a Hard Ride, which is a Western, and Joshua. So, you know, he, he definitely enjoyed watching westerns and then the first opportunity he had to star in one he did uh the bad guy in this is william smith who we saw a few minutes ago who's the bad guy in black samson uh durville martin was the original lionel jefferson in the unaired all in the family pilot uh, also in this film you have barbara lee uh, who almost became vampirella and rg armstrong today kids in love and in trouble Now we have Honky with the lovely Brenda Sykes. Now, uh, now you mentioned earlier Jack H. Harris. This was mm -hmm. a Jack Harris release. Um, came out in 1971. It was based on the novel Shelia by Gunnard Salberg, and it was actually filmed under that title. What's interesting is that her name is misspelled. Uh, Brenda Sykes plays Shelia, uh, but it's misspelled everywhere uh, on the <laughs> film, and in, I've seen it misspelled in reviews also. It's uh, Sheila. Uh, but it's actually S-H-E-L-I-A. William Graham directed this, uh, and his very next film was a Western called uh, Cry For Me Billy, which is a very similar story, but it's, a, it's about a, a white man uh, in a romance with an Indian. Uh, but it, it, again, that one ends unhappily. Here's uh, William Marshall. Blackula. Right, uh, two years before Blackula. Uh, this is a, uh, Quincy Jones did the music for this movie, and it's a really strange score for him. him. It was uh, during his Don Elliott voices period when he would do uh, strange things with uh, human voices, pu putting them uh, in, in, I guess, through a synthesizer or something. It's very similar to his Dollar score and his uh, score for The Getaway. Lincoln Kilpatrick uh, plays a drug pusher in this movie. He did a, a number of projects with William A. Graham. Uh, he was also in Together Brothers for Graham uh, three years after this, which also has Glenn Turman in it. Uh, and he also appeared in numerous uh, TV shows for the director, including Ironside, Police Story, Medical Center, and then came Bronson. Um, we have uh, a, uh, actually we're seeing the unhappy ending here, and the poster also gives away what happens uh, at the end of this film. So there's Matt Clark, 
Yeah, we're going to see a lot of very long trailers on this disc, so uh, you might have to bear with us at certain moments. And that's one thing that I want to point out here. It, oh, sometimes we might be talking over certain trailers because it's just the trailers are so long, we'll have a lot to say, so please be patient with us. Um, we'll oh, skip around, too. We'll come back and, and we'll come back. talk about things. All right, then this, the next film you're about to see here, or the trailer, is for Sugar Hill, which is a film directed by Paul Maslansky, who was a producer uh, of many genre films. He uh, wanted to make his own film, so he went to Samuel Z. Arkoff, and Blackula was a pretty successful film, and Samuel Z. Arkoff goes, okay, I want you to make a black horror film, and uh, I'll give you 350 grand. And so he did, and uh, he got Robert Quarry here to star, uh, and, a and AIP at the time was trying to make Robert Quarry into their own, the new Vincent Price. Um, he appeared in Count Yorga, and Madhouse, and a few others, and unfortunately had a you know, he was assaulted and kind of put a, you know, ruined his career for a while. Um, well, he had a car accident, didn't he? I think he got hit by a drunk driver. I think he was actually mugged. Yeah, oh, so he really? was beaten up by muggers. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, he, um, Paul Maslansky uh, had produced a number of horror films, including Castle of the Living Dead, She-Beast, uh, Deathline, a.k.a. Raw Meat, which is a terrific film, and he was an executive producer after this on Race with the Devil. Uh, but as Eddie said, this is the only film he directed, and he actually... Uh, got most of his fame from producing the Police Academy films in the 80s. This is a zombie film, and it's uh, one of the last zombie films to really deal with voodoo as the motivating force behind the zombies. Um, pretty soon you had a lot of uh, viruses and government conspiracies and everything else raising the dead, but this is traditional voodoo. And Sugar Hill's theme song uh, was available on Motown Records, uh, Supernatural Voodoo Woman by the Originals. That's a good song. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I think, the best song on the album. I mean, the, the album is decent, but I really like Supernatural Voodoo Woman. He's been away for eight years. Now, he's coming home. Speaking for myself, I'd like to say that the whole experience has made a better man. Now a, a true classic of uh, the drive-in era, Rolling Thunder. Uh, this, this one's really endured, and it's a terrific film. It's, it still holds up. It was written by Paul Schrader, and then it was rewritten by Haywood Gould. Um, William Devane here stars as a John McCain-like character. Uh, well, Devane plays uh, Charles Rain, who is a person who was a POW and in the Vietnam War, and he comes home to find out that his life is not what he left it and it's, he's a damaged person. Um, it's a very well-made film. In fact, uh, the uh, opening song, which plays in the opening credits, was written by Barry Dvorzen, San Antone. It was used again a year later or so in the ninth configuration. Uh, the film is very violent. In fact, there is a scene which many people have talked about over the years where the character's hand is forced into a garbage disposal. It's a very unsettling scene, which turned off many audience members. And in fact, the, they said that they, they use a lamb shank. Uh, it's really realistic. And uh, also it features a very early performance from Tommy Lee Jones here is uh, one of uh, Devane's friends here. Uh, speaking of reactions, uh, William Goldman in his book Adventures in the Screen Trade is talking about um, negative audience reaction to an early screening of the great Waldo Pepper. But in the process, he says, the most violent sneak reaction of recent years probably belongs to Rolling Thunder, where the audience actually got up and tried physically to abuse the studio personnel present among them. Uh, fortunately, that reputation didn't uh, continue. Uh, again, this is a very 
highly regarded film. Uh, who's I, was this the first film that John Flynn directed? Uh, no. no. no okay. Done a, he, back in the sixties, I think he did a few. He also did the outfit. Right, the outfit was. Yeah, the and uh, he went on to do uh, Defiance with Jan Michael Vincent, which is another kind of uh, revenge film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, Rolling Thunder bounced around from studio to studio. I know it was at Columbia and Twentieth Century Fox also. And uh, Fox had previewed it in San, San Jose. That was the one you were talking about. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, Schrader had just come off uh, Taxi Driver, of course. And yeah. Haywood Gould went on to write uh, Fort Apache, The Bronx, I believe is probably his best-known credit. Uh, here's uh, Act of Vengeance, a.k.a. Rape Squad, uh, another American international release. Uh, a lot of, uh, knowing a lot of cities wouldn't run advertising for a movie called Rape Squad or theaters would have a problem running a movie called Rape Squad, uh, it was it was released simultaneously under both titles. Jack Hill was originally supposed to direct this film, ex- except he said he had problems with the script, and uh, that might explain the appearance of uh, Peter Brown here, who was in Foxy Brown as the bad guy Jingles. Uh, the whole theme is that he would rape a woman and then force them to sing Jingle Bells, which is how he earned his name. The film was then directed by the great Bob Kelgen, who was well known for directing uh, Scream, Black of the Scream, and of course. The Wonderful Count Yorga and uh, Black Oak Conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the film was released on video as Act of Vengeance with a crudely made video generated title card under the title Act of Vengeance. Get him. I know it. There they go, my. As you can see here, the character wears a hockey mask, which would be ma- made famous years later by two people. Uh, in the Road Warrior, with by the character uh, humongous. Hum- humongous. How can we forget that? And of course, in a 1982 uh, two, in Friday the Thirteenth Part 3D, where Jason takes on a hockey mask. And we just saw Leda Edmund Jr. again, uh, who we saw in Savage. The worst word for what they're going to do to get even. And uh, now we com- we're coming up to uh, what I think is one of the best of uh, the Rape Revenge films, Ms. 45. This is the second film directed by Abel Ferrara, who'd, uh, whose previous film was The Driller Killer, which has a reputation of being kind of a violent, misogynistic slasher film, perhaps due to certain ads which contain the line, several pints of blood will spill when teenage girls confront his drill. Uh, though in the film, there are actually <laughs> very few, if any, uh, female victims. The uh, Driller Killer mostly kills derelicts. In this one, um, there are more men who are killed by Thena, played by Zoe Tamerlis here, who is terrific uh, as this young girl who is raped actually twice in one day. And one of the rapists was played by Abel Ferrara himself, uh, make of that what you will, using his pseudonym Jimmy Lane. Uh, Zoe Tamerlis was only 17 when she made this film. Um, she actually grew up uh, in Mamaroneck, New York, which is not far from where we're recording this commentary now. She got her start in music um, and then uh, went on to pursue acting. And she uh, collaborated with. There's. A... Yeah, there's a Jimmy Lane slash Abel Ferrara doing his thing. Um, Tamerlis and uh, Ferrara were, went on to collaborate again on Bad Lieutenant, and they were going to collaborate on more films before her untimely death. Uh, one of them was going to be a biopic of John Holmes, which I'd have loved to have seen Abel Ferrara do. I think with Christopher Walken. Right? Yeah, Christopher Walken was uh, was going to star in that. Uh, Danny Peary, in his book Cult Movies Two, um, recalls the experience of seeing this film in the theater where you know the, the usual audience came and the opening rape scenes, they're whooping it up as those audiences tend to do. And then Zoe Tamerla starts fighting back and shooting all these men, which uh, apparently silenced these guys uh, for the duration of the rest of the film. 
Uh, interestingly, uh, you mentioned the uh, the rape scene with Abel Ferrara. He had also played uh, a rapist in one of his hardcore films, uh, Nine Lives of a, Wet, of a Wet Pussycat. Yeah, so um, the, the foreign rights, the overseas rights to uh, Ms. 45 were picked up by Warner Brothers on the recommendation of William Friedkin, and they retitled the film Angel of Vengeance, and Ferrara wound up using a lot of their campaigns and just changed the title to Ms. 45, so he got to use their promotional material uh, kind of free of charge, I guess. Another thing interesting I, I was learned from a friend is that Miss 45 used to play on clubs down in the village on many screens at, at these really crazy discos oh, and things. Dance and, clubs. Yeah, and dance clubs, and people would really get into it. Um, uh, and the thing is, you were talking about how Zoe Tamarillis gets raped twice in one day. That's kind of similar to another film, which I think is garbage, which is I Spit on Your Grave. Mm. I consider Miss 45, I would say, the best rape revenge film because, for once, you feel for the victim and are glad that she takes her revenge. I, my, my favorite rape revenge film is Hanny Calder. Well, it's interesting because I Spit on Your Grave got lumped in with a lot of the slasher films of the 80s, probably because in, you know, a lot of people saw it as being as misogynistic in a certain way as some of the slasher films were. Miss 45 never did, even though it's a very similar plot line because you really are on Thana's side throughout, and it, it really is about her, uh, it's more about her character than about uh, the, the violence done to her. Well, we just saw, uh, they call her One Eye, which uh, came and went, but that was uh, very quickly, uh, that was made in 1973 and uh, released in the U.S. in 1974 by American International. Uh, it was uh, rated R, had to be cut to get an R rating, and uh, after that, uh, as of December 1975 onward, uh, it was retitled Hooker's Revenge and released usually with uh, Photographer's Models, which was a re-release of The House of Whipcord. Originally, uh, when it was They Call Her One Eye, it was on a double bill with Dirty O'Neill. Here's Ginger from 1970. Uh, which was originally supposed to be released by Jerry Gross through his Cinemation Industries, uh, eventually went out in 1971 uh, by Joseph Brenner, th through uh, Joseph Brenner Associates. Uh, it was released unrated, uh, and then in 1972 it was submitted to the MPAA and got an R rating. Um, this is long. I think most of the Ginger movies, this was the first of three. Uh, the other two were uh, The Abductors and Girls Are For Loving. Uh, this one was an hour and 45 minutes, and it, it feels like it at, at times. <laughs> and I think this is, uh, I, I believe this is the first trailer of any that we've done on any of these where we have full frontal male nudity in the trailer. He takes on the sex call, the fixer, the blackmailer. Come on. I'm here to lay you, and that's all. So, uh, take your clothes off, and let's go. Here, you bastard. Here's another 25. It's all I've got. Now give me my fix. It ain't money I want, white girl. What is it that you want, Jimmy? And also, I think the trailer is almost as long as the movie, as you can see. <laughs> and by the way, that is that is James Earl Jones there in the trailer, is it not, Chris? No. Uh, no. That's uh, a joke, people. <laughs> this is back when they wanted to give people everything in the trailers. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty much the same way these days. But back then, if they had five minutes worth of highlights, they would give you a five-minute trailer. Yep. And uh, you mentioned the full frontal male nudity. Uh, that was Calvin Culver a.k.a. Uh, gay porn star Casey Donovan, playing a character named Rodney. Hmm. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Who gets his Rodney cut off, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if they kill me? You've got What's interesting in this is that uh, the backstory that they give Ginger, 
she's she's a racist, and she uh, she had been raped by black men, and so she uh, there, I think there's a scene where she where she kills uh, a black man. Later on, for the second and third films, they they eliminated that character flaw, and uh, and actually have her uh, doing some scenes with uh, Timothy Brown, former football star, uh, and she's. Uh, a much nicer person in that one, <laughs> in the other two, rather. She knows how to shape up. She's kinky. She's curvy. She's curvy. The picture that gets down to bedrock. Ginger, the very private eye. These are very big hits. Yeah, they were. Well, this was a big hit. It, it led to the uh, the other two films. And Joseph Brenner, I see, released this one. Yeah, and uh, I think he did the second one also. Here's Savage Sisters. Uh, this is an incredibly long trailer, uh, <laughs> but a good movie. Uh, this is another one that was shot in the Philippines. Uh, and again, we have Sherry Cafaro here, who is the star of Ginger. Uh, she's not Ginger in this one. This is, um, I think, the only film she appeared in that her husband didn't direct. This was uh, directed by Eddie Romero, who had uh, done a number of films in the Philippines. He's a Filipino director. Uh, he did the uh, Blood Island series prior to this. And this is, um, I think, the I don't know if this came before or after uh, Ebony, Ivory, and Jade, which also the gimmick was you had a white, uh, black, and Asian girl side by side all kicking ass together. Well, that was the way that was advertised, Ebony, Ivory, and Jade, but the, the, uh, the, the Asian actress was actually killed early on. It's, it, that one turns out to be uh, two black actresses oh, okay. and a white actress. Yeah, but it was advertised as Ebony, Ivory, and Jade. This one, we have Gloria Hendry, we see right here, uh, who had just been in Live and Let Die and was in the two Black Caesar films and Black Bell Jones and also the second Slaughter film. So uh, she was uh, very popular in the early 70s and like so many of the black actresses and actors of this period, uh, it didn't really carry over into the 80s. I always wonder if they use the same jails and fortresses down in the Philippines, because I'm looking at this. This looks a lot like some of the stuff that I saw in Savage when I saw that recently. Oh, yeah, yeah, they would reuse the same locations. Um, Probably some of the same explosions, too. Yeah. Well, this, uh, this went out through American International, uh, where uh, Savage was a New World release. Uh, this is a funny scene where... Uh, the three women manipulate John Ashley here into helping them. Uh, they, they, all three of them seduce him. Uh, John Ashley produced this film. Uh, he had gone to the Philippines in the late 60s to do a few of the Blood Island movies and liked it so much there he stayed and became involved on the production end with a number of, of these films, including The Blood Islands, uh, Beyond Atlantis. Um, it's, oh, there's one called Sudden Death that he worked on. Uh, and so on. This is a long trailer. Oh, no, it's very long. It keeps going and going. Um, it's a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> we have Sid Haig in this movie and also uh, the ubiquitous Vic Diaz. Uh, Rosanna Ortiz, who we also saw in the Savage trailer. Uh, that's her right there in the middle. She's uh, the third Savage sister. Do we see Sid Haig in this trailer anywhere? Uh, I think... Briefly, There's, is that Vic over there on the right in the no, Hawaiian shirt? No. no, I think that's the other prison guard from the Big Bird Cage. So I, 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 the I same faces tend name. to show up in these films time and again. Oh, sure. Yeah, you always see Ken Metcalf and uh, Eddie Garcia 
I think both of them are in this. Uh, AIP would frequently change the artwork and the campaigns for their movies. So there's one, there's one where Cherry Cafaro is uh, front and center, and then there's one where Gloria Henry is front and center, and that's the one that would be used to advertise it when it was in urban markets. They'd you know make it look like it was a, a black exploitation film, uh, which was uh, you know that that was a, a fairly uh, popular thing to do in the early 70s. I know Walking Tall at one point was sold with Felton Perry uh, along, you know, standing next to uh, Joe Don Baker. Uh, there's Sid Haig. You see him briefly mm -hmm. up on the hill there with, with uh, Vic Diaz. Yeah, he's, that's, he's the one with the sombrero there. He, he always had the most crazy outfits in these yeah. movies. Well, this is a very funny movie. Um, I mean, they, they all have moments of humor. I think Woman Hunt is really the, the most serious of this batch, but uh, but th this one really plays up the humor. Yeah, most of these films were about a bunch of, I, I guess, uh, Americans or people come into these banana republics and try to overthrow the corrupt government. That's basically nearly all of these Filipino films where you see these women in jail. Yeah, Either that but, or their prisoners trying to bust out. Yeah, there's always a, a revolutionary character, uh, like in, in uh, Black Mama, White Mama, uh, in the hot box. There's always someone who's a, a rebel. And now we get into going back to prison with uh, Jensen Farley Pictures, the people who brought us The Boogans and uh, numerous films by Graydon Clark, including Joysticks and Wacko. And this is maybe the, one of the most wacko films they released. The first women and probably the only women in prison film I'm aware of in which the warden has a hot tub in his office. <laughs> we have, uh, this was Billy, uh, producer Billy Fine's follow-up to The Concrete Jungle had been a big surprise hit uh, the previous year. Uh, that one, I, I believe Jill St. John was the, the uh, warden in it, and uh, in, in this one you have uh, John Vernon. Yeah, this is kind of an all-star exploitation cast. You've got Linda Blair here as the star. Uh, there's John Vernon. In that wonderful hot tub. Yes. Yeah, it's funny, uh, in the movie I'm Gonna Get You, Sucka, the uh, surprise revelation of the villain is that it's John Vernon, and his line when he's revealed is... What do you mean? Lots of famous actors have done exploitation movies, uh, though the joke was kind of blunted by the fact that by that point, John Vernon was pretty much known for exploitation films. He'd done quite a few by that point. Um, cur curtains. And <laughs> <laughs> was Thank cur you. <laughs> he had done curtains, kinky coaches, and pom-pom pussycats. Savage and, Streets, yeah. ki uh, killer clowns from outer space. Mm -hmm. he, he really was kind of an exploitation fixture by this point. This movie has a great cast. Uh, how great is it? Uh, you know it's a great cast when Michael Callan from Cat Baloo is 22nd build. Uh, but you have Tamara Dobson, Stella Stevens, Henry Silva, Erwin uh, Keyes, Monique Gabrielle, Edie Williams. Uh, you have Jennifer Ashley, who we're going to see two more times in mm -hmm. uh, Centerfold Girls and the Pom Pom Girls. And uh, uh, just on and on. It has, a, it has a really great cast. This movie was directed by Paul Nicholas, who I believe was European. I'm not sure from exactly where, but uh, he went on to do another women in prison film, The Naked Cage, and also a movie called Julie Darling with Tony Franciosa. And Sybil Danning. And Sybil Danning, who is also in, in this one. Yep. And as you can see right there, that was uh, Tamara Dobson in one of her non-Cleopatra uh, Jones films. Uh, very, very wonderful mm -hmm. black actress. The only other film I believe she did other than this was, is Norman Is That You?, well, she had done, uh, this was her second film with Stella Stevens, who was also on Cleopatra Jones and the Casino of Gold. And then I think they did a TV movie right after this called Amazons that Paul Michael Glaser directed. Oh, I, I remember Amazons. Yeah. <laughs> uh, here we have Delinquent Schoolgirls, 
I don't see any um, delinquent schoolgirls. <laughs> Where are the delinquent schoolgirls? Michael school girls? in his underwear. Uh, <laughs> I'd rather see some delinquent schoolgirls, if you ask me. Uh, yeah, we, we heard Ron Gans, uh, the famous trailer announcer. He did all the trailers for New World movies. Oh, I'll bet there's some delinquent schoolgirls in there. Yeah. There are some delinquent schoolgirls. Uh, he was He's the trailer announcer in this film, and he's also in the movie as a newscaster. Uh, this was first released in September of 1974 as Carnal Madness, by January 1975, uh, it had been retitled Delinquent Schoolgirls and went on to play drive-ins for several years uh, after that. This was directed by uh, Greg Cororito, uh, who had done Hard on the Trail, The Fabulous Bastard from Chicago, and Wanda the Sadistic Hypnotist. Uh, <laughs> I love that title. <laughs> what we have here is uh, we have these three uh, insane asylum escapees played by Michael Pataki, uh, stuntman Bob Miner and Steven Stucker, uh, who oh really right yeah with with, with more hair here. Um, There's a sale at Pennies. <laughs> Steven Stucker, uh, for those who don't know the name, he plays uh, Johnny Andor Jacobs from the two airplane movies. The one who pops into scenes and does lots of weird non sequiturs all throughout the control tower scenes. And Leon. And Leon's getting, getting larger. larger. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we have uh, in the cast here also George Buckflower, John Alderman. And Sharon Kelly, uh, who later became known as a, a hardcore actress named Colleen Brennan. So who are the other schoolgirls? Uh, you mean the actresses? Yeah. Um, geez, uh, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're familiar faces. I think uh, Roxanne Brewer maybe is one of them. I don't know. It's actually more noticeable for the other people in the cast than the ones playing the schoolgirls themselves. Roberta Payton, maybe? I, I, I don't, uh, it's been a while since I've seen this one. Let me see if I can pick out anyone. Ah, yes, I recognize those breasts. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that tongue. I know that tongue. Um, well, there's Sharon Kelly. We can talk a little bit about Bob Miner. Bob Miner, of course, was the, uh, the man who started the Black Man Start, uh, Stunt Association. Uh, was he? Yeah, he was one of the early ones. He was one, a, very, a black stunt man. In fact, Jack Hill used him a lot in his early films and uh, was a very hmm. guiding force in that. Actually, Earl, um, hmm, his name will come to me. I think he may have started, but Bob Miner was definitely one of the... Tony Brubaker also was involved. He was the bald zombie that we saw in Sugar Hill. Yeah, he, he was. Uh, he was a. Uh, I think he was um, one of the first founders of the, the Black Stun Association. But definitely, Bob Meyer played a big part in it. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. and he because uh, Jack Hill was talking about how it was very hard to find black mm -hmm. stuntmen who were talent, uh, who were you know were able to do the, a lot of these stunts in these black exploitation films, and so. Bob Miner was a very big part in, uh, in the Stuntman's Association, mm -hmm. so uh, in addition to his acting abilities. So I think that should be noted. Here's uh, The Pom Pom Girls, which was a huge hit for Crown International in 1976 uh, and kind of set the, uh, the standard for them for a few years uh, after this. Uh, how big a hit was this? It was released in May of 1976, and by the end of the year it had grossed over $18 million. Uh, which was a lot of money for a low-budget drive-in movie that was rated R. Uh, in fact, January of 1977, Crown cut this for a PG, resubmitted it, got a PG, and continued playing it through 1977 with, uh, with other films uh, of theirs, and it, it made even more money. Uh, about a year or two ago, I talked with Lou Arkoff, and he said that uh, this movie made so much money that uh, he decided he was going to take Joseph Rubin away from Crown International. <laughs> jo Joseph Rubin directed this film, and uh, Lou Arkoff lured him over to American International to do Joyride, Our Winning Season, and Gorp. Uh, but it was based on the uh, enormous 
grosses uh, on this film. And of course he went on to do uh, The Stepfather, which launched him into the big leagues and he did a bunch of major studio films mm -hmm. after that. Dreamscape. Yeah, 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 and and Joseph Rubin is one of the only directors to uh, work at Crown and at AIP, which is unusual. Right, he had done uh, the sister-in-law prior to this, and then uh, and then did uh, this film, and and just kind of hit box office gold. Uh, this was written by Robert Rosenthal, who uh, next wrote and directed Malibu Beach for Crown, and then in the early '80s uh, made a film called Zapped, which you may have heard of. Oh yeah, which, uh, with cheerleaders getting their clothes torn off by a telekinetic Scott Bayo. Uh, James Gammon, uh, the late James Gammon, plays the uh, the coach in the Pom Pom Girls, and uh, you may have also seen uh, Bill Adler there, uh, who became the lead in a Crown International film a few years later, Van Nuys Boulevard. Uh, here, oh, hello. Uh, here we have the <laughs> the teasers go to Paris, which is a uh, a pseudo sequel to the teasers. Uh, this was released by Group One Films, and uh, the thing is, the teasers was a big hit for them in 1977. It's actually an Italian film called, and I'm going to mangle my uh, my Italian here, La Leciale, uh, which was made in 1975 and starred Gloria Guida. Um, they also released it as Sophomore Swingers. Uh, interestingly, when they re-released re it as Sophomore Swingers, they used the poster for this film, The Teasers Go to Paris. Uh, which caused some confusion on the internet. Uh, this is actually a French film uh, by Max Picus uh, called, and you know, my French is even worse than my Italian. Uh, <laughs> pardon me, but I think it's Marche Passui. Look Say what? Up, look it up on the IMDb. 1977. Um, but there, uh, there's an actress in here you might recognize from Zombie and New York Ripper, uh, Alexandra Delacoli, uh, is uh, one of the other girls. I'll point her out when we get to her. Um, I mentioned the poster for this film. Uh, there she is, uh, the blonde in the middle. Uh, the posters uh, for this film were done by Robert McGinnis, who uh, did many of the uh, pulp paperback novels in the 50s and 60s, um, usually uh, John D. McDonald's uh, Travis McGee books he would do. And he still does artwork. He's been doing the poster or the uh, book covers for Hard Case Crimes line of uh, paperbacks. Uh, this trailer, again, it's a long one. Uh, that was group one style was they would show all the nudity and then they would cut. They would put cut in uh, usually after they had shown uh, the, the, yeah, the item that other places would, would actually cut. They would show, they would show the breasts or the rear end, and then and then put the cut in. Yeah, Group Run released a lot of films. In fact, uh, they've started to produce their own films. Uh, one of them was Alligator, and of course, their most successful film, which basically closed up shop because it made them so much Fire. money to return. Was The Sword and the... Oh, the Sword and the Sorceress. And if I'm not mistaken, they made almost $30 million, which is quite a bit of money back then. Yeah, it was produced on a, a much lower budget than most of the other sword and sorcery films at the time. It was done completely independently and was a huge surprise hit. Uh, it was followed by countless rip-offs, uh, none of which were nearly as successful. Alligator was... Yeah. 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 Well, Alligator was not a, a huge hit for them at the box office, but it was a huge hit on television. Um, it actually got its following there. Group One uh, would frequently change the names on, the, on their posters. Uh, so you wouldn't know what country the movie came from or who the stars were. So that's why uh, when I mentioned 
the teasers and the teasers go to Paris and, and there being some confusion over them. Uh, even in Box Office Magazine, they would put wrong names uh, in, in the cast lists. Uh, group One was originally located not far from here in Scarsdale, New York, and then they, uh, they moved to California probably right before this movie, like in the mid to late 70s. And it's interesting that even though they kind of closed up shop as a distributor in uh, early to mid 80s, they still had an office in the 90s because I remember we were doing our retrospective on Alligator in Fangoria Magazine and I looked up Group One and called them. They still had an office and they still had files and sent us a bunch of photos mm. from Alligator and uh, gave us an interview about the film as well. There's the Robert McInnes artwork, which uh, is, is kind of reminiscent of the semi-tough poster that he did. Oh, that's right. Um, the Burt Reynolds, Chris Christopherson film. Um, you can see there, I think it says uh, band in you know, fill-in-the-blank number of countries, which was another uh, Group One uh, tactic in advertising <laughs> was that they would say, you know, banned in 31 countries, now you can see it without a single cut. Mm -hmm. But they were usually rated R, so... You know. Now, Group One did parts <laughs> of the Clonus Horror also, didn't they? Yes, and then the other one there, the Gemini Strain, yeah. what was that? The, oh, M3, M M the Gemini. Well, parts right. of the Clonus Horror is, is got into the news recently because um, the uh, writer and director of that film, Robert S. Fiveson, sued over the island, the Michael Bay film, which he claimed had uh, plagiarized parts of the Clonus Horror. And if you've seen both movies, you know he had quite a case. Uh, unfortunately for him, uh, the island became Michael Bay's only box office disappointment, so there was no money to be made off of that one. However, it wasn't the only disappointment for real film fans because he sucks. But anyway, that brings us next to the teacher. <laughs> topic, but okay. <laughs> that brings us next to the teacher, which here stars Jay North, a.k.a. Dennis the Menace. And Angel Tompkins, hot off of the little cigars. Uh, this, this is another Crown International release, and, and again, you know, they, uh, Red Jacobs, the founder of Crown International, uh, learned pretty quickly that you had to have uh, pretty, pretty women in your films and, you know, unclothed much of the time, and he started, he had a really big hit in 1969 with The Babysitter, so that followed with The Teacher and The Specialist. Now they and also did a movie. Sister-in-law and the stepmother, etc. They also did a movie called Trip with the Teacher. Was that one of theirs also? Uh, yeah, I think Which that had... was a pickup. Yeah. Oh, okay, because that, as I recall, has nothing to do with the teacher. The two films aren't related, I don't think. No, they aren't, and they did uh, the Babysitter and Weekend with the Babysitter, and, and those aren't related either. Um, Trip with the Teacher is more of a thriller, actually, than a, yeah. than a sex film. And well, it's... actually, the teacher has some thriller elements also, Anthony James. And it also stars uh, uh, Zalman King, you know, the right. soft, porno, por soft porno director <clears throat> who was then an actor. Um, Crown was very, very good at making films like, you know, babies, as you said, the babysitter, mm -hmm. stuff with young kids, with older people, which, hey, is probably a statutory rape these days. Well, the, the, uh, the babysitter was a black and white film, and then uh, the same director and the same star uh, who also produced the film, uh, the next year they did Weekend with the Babysitter, which was a color film. Uh, here we go with College Girls uh, from 1968. This is, uh, as you can see, a black and white film. Uh, this was made by A.C. Stephen, who was born Stephen C. Apostoloff uh, in 1928 in Bulgaria. Uh, he directed eight movies that were written by Ed Wood. Uh, this is one of them. Uh, Featuring a shower scene with guys with their shorts on. Right. <laughs> this, <laughs> this must was, I assume that was for uh, the mores of the times. Uh, this is uh, also known as College Girl Confidential. <laughs> Uh, the other, uh, a few of the other films that Ed Wood wrote uh, for A.C. Stephen were uh, Orgy of the Dead, 
Probably that's the most famous of them. Because he also, I believe he wrote the novelization of that one too, which is kind of an in-demand collectible. Yeah, Ed Wood did, sure. Uh, the Snow Bunnies, The Beach Bunnies, and Fugitive Girls. Uh, we have an interesting cast here. We have Foreman Shane, who had done uh, Love is a Four-Letter Word for Lee Frost, and then did a, a few other uh, A.C. Stephen films. Marsha Jordan, who was in Her Odd Tastes, uh, Sweet Georgia, and also Count Yorga, Vampire. Toga! Toga! <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Capri, who had been in the... the uh, oh, there's Marsha Jordan. She's the first one there. Um, Capri, who had been in The Animal for Lee Frost... And, uh, and then we have Julia Blackburn from Invitation to Ruin, which we'll see later, and Alice in Acidland. <laughs> Good title. Right. What's so surprising, too, is this, as you said, it was 1966, but the amount of flesh here for that 68, time. 68, yeah. 68, I mean, even at that time, it's just, wow, this is pretty out there. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is like, you know, uh, I don't even know the word to use, so I'll use this. There <laughs> <laughs> Don't overdo that. <laughs> the, uh, the... <laughs> Sorry, yeah, folks. Right. we got to have a little fun today. Um, you, you, you mentioned the amount of nudity. No full frontal yet. Yeah, that's would, like yeah. I said, in the shower you have guys you know, with their shorts for the ones facing the camera. And, and despite all of the breasts here, there's been no full frontal on the gals either. <laughs> and this is another never-ending trailer. It's almost like this is the Super 8 version of College Girls, which probably wasn't much longer than 60 minutes anyway yeah and who needs to see the movie you can just watch the trailer and get your rocks off and then leave within four minutes you know why even pay for the movie of course all work and no play is not good either so occasionally the students break away from the tedium of study to relax a quiet little get together with their fellow students and, and it looks like they shot this on like one set I wonder if they uh, wonder what stood in for the college I can't imagine any actual college allowing them to shoot there no nah. This well, is probably somebody's house. Right. Oh, sure. Yeah, Best well, viewed on an LED screen, as you can see here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, any more background on this one we can discuss, or should we just sit here admiring the scenery? Well, yeah, we can admire the scenery. I don't really remember too much more about this one. It was just one of many A.C. Stephen films that were cranked out. So to speak. And yes, she's still dancing, and, and the guy's still playing the guitar. It's a different woman. Okay. <laughs> Can't tell them apart. I'm not looking at their faces. I'm sure someone's going to call us out for not naming all of these starlets. But... People, we're sorry. We're trying here, but come on. It's just tits and ass. <laughs> we're dying here. It's tits and ass. It's we're tits and trying. ass. We're dying. Okay, here we go. Thank okay. God it's over. <laughs> I think that's the end. And uh, moving right along to more girls. Street girls, which uh, is very similar to hardcore. Uh, we mentioned Paul Schrader earlier. Uh, this is a similar storyline to uh, Hardcore from 1979 with George C. Scott, where he uh, goes looking for his daughter who has run away from home and, and is uh, working within the porn industry. Uh, this was shot, I believe, in Eugene, Oregon uh, in 1974. It was written by Barry Levinson and directed by Michael Miller. The runaway's name is Angel. She's played by Chris Souter, uh, and she's working at a topless bar and being turned on to heroin by her dealer boyfriend, played by Jay Derringer, and her father shows up looking for her. So it was released by New World Pictures in, I think, 1975, and uh, again, I mentioned John Soley earlier is doing the Savage One Sheet. This was another John Soley poster for New World. 
You mentioned Eugene, Oregon. It's not exactly a mecca of filmmaking, though. If I'm not mistaken, uh, National Lampoon's Animal House was shot in that general vicinity as well. Mm. A few years after this. Yeah. This was also known as Crackers, and uh, although I did see this movie, uh, I don't remember why it was named Crackers at one point. No rednecks in there? Hmm. I don't know. Maybe, maybe <laughs> in the audience in the strip club. <laughs> Cracker. Produced by Bump Productions. Maybe it was called Bump at one time. Did this actress go on to do any other films? Uh, not that I know of off the top of my head. I'm wondering if they cast mostly local talent on this thing. This got a lot of play. I mean, New World put this on a lot of double and triple features uh, through, you know, through the 70s. Uh, I know somebody who, who saw it a number of times at the drive, and he, he never really cared for the movie, but he always ended up seeing it. And he, he, his recollections of it were th that it was shot on, in, like, three alleyways. <laughs> but, well, there's the John Soli artwork. Uh, but no, it's 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 a pretty gritty little film. I, I I liked it when I saw it years ago on um, Charter Home Entertainment. Here's the babysitter, which we mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, there's the lovely uh, Patricia Weimer, who also did a film for Crown called The Young Graduates, two years after this. One of several films uh, with the title The Babysitter and the same basic premise. Mm -hmm. uh, what's interesting about this movie is that uh, it was. It was directed by uh, uh, Robert Henderson, no, Don Henderson, mm -hmm. and, uh, but th there's some speculation that Don Henderson is actually Tom Laughlin, and no one has really been able to, uh, to prove that. Yeah, Don Henderson uh, also directed The Touch of Satan, yeah. a supernatural film from 1974, which uh, has been featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000, mm -hmm. and it was also uh, one of the very first credits of the cinematographer Jordan Cronenworth who went on to do uh, Blade Runner. Uh, the older gentleman that's romancing the babysitter in this is George E. Carey, uh, and he, all, he produced, there he is, he produced the movie, and he also is Yeah, I in, wonder why. <laughs> as he, long as I can play the male lead. <laughs> he also produced Weekend with the Babysitter and was the male lead in that as well. On uh, this one, he plays a DA, or rather an assistant DA, who's prosecuting a, a biker played by Robert Tessier, um, and that's one of the reasons why some people think uh, Tom Laughlin was the director of this is because Tessier had, had been in The Born Losers. Uh, also, uh, Do uh, Tom Laughlin frequently used the pseudonym T.C. Frank, mm -hmm. and there is a T.C. Frank in the cast of this movie. Man, I dig you. You turn me on. So for the sequel, uh, I... There was a different actress playing the babysitter, but, uh, but George Carey uh, returned. And uh, it's a, a different storyline, but similar, you know, similar setup. I decided to see if I could turn you on. I wanted to try you out, to see what it would be like. The babysitter. Don't let her in your house unless you want real trouble. The babysitter. A Crown International Pictures release. That was a, a self-applied X. Uh, when they submitted it uh, a few months later, I think it was a uh, it got a it got an R. I think they played it through '69 with a self-applied X, and then in like January of '70 they submitted it. I think. 
Um, what's interesting is the uh, she played a character named Candy Wilson in that, in The Babysitter, and uh, a band called The Food did Candy's theme, which is the theme song for uh, for The Babysitter. Patricia Weimer, I think, was in another movie. That, um, the, the title escapes me, but I think it was um, Not My Daughter. I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting now. I think she made, she did one other film. Okay, here we have Teen Mother <laughs> from Jerry Gross. This is a movie really ahead of its time with all these MTV reality shows today about teen mothers. Yeah, there she is. Teen Mother means nine months of trouble. Uh, <laughs> that's Not the copy. Be... Not to be confused, I believe uh, there's a black and white film called Teenage Mothers. It's the one that Fred Willard is in. Really? Oh, he's in this. Oh, he's in this one? Yeah, this is Teenage Mother. Okay. I For some reason, I seem to recall that one was black and white, but uh, I saw it at about four in the morning, so maybe my recollections are a little fuzzy. On a black and white set, maybe? Yeah. No, this was, this was at a, a, an exhumed 24-hour uh, oh, festival. Oh, okay. Well, this is it, Teenage Mother. Okay, so yeah. this is with Fred Willard. Was I saying Teen Mother? Yeah. Oh, I didn't mean that. I was confusing it with the, the film that we saw at that time. Oh, right, yeah. Teen Mothers. It's, it's so difficult to keep these things straight. Se Seeds of Innocence. That's right, yeah. Seed of Innocence, Seed the of Innocence. Lost Cannon film. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah, this is Teenage Mother, sorry about that, uh, which was released in 1967 uh, by Jerry Gross. Uh, it was you know, released again, sans rating. Uh, at some point in 1971, he submitted it and it got a GP. So that'll tell you how shocking this is. Mm -hmm. Although there are some prints of this, I think, that have birth of a baby footage. Yes, well, that, on. that that was what happened. Um, <laughs> for those who are unaware, the um, Exhume Films in uh, Pennsylvania does a 24-hour horror fest every October. And um, they show you know, 24 straight hours of movies off 35 prints. And they do not tell you in advance what the movies are. They just sort of have a little description. And then you find out as the movies play what you're going to be seeing. Uh, I forget exactly how this one was described, but they talked about it being, you know, with, with the, the most shocking scene of the evening. So, again, it was uh, something like four in the morning when they got around to this one. Uh, I was about, you know, I was pretty much half asleep by that point. And my reactions to it were basically... Uh, Here's Jerry Gross, by the way, right there. Oh, yeah. Jerry Gross in, in the film, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, but my, my reactions were basically, oh, wait, is that Fred Willard? Holy crap. And then waking, then starting to hear people around me screaming, wondering <laughs> what was going on, waking up. And maybe that's, I think the, the birth of the baby footage may be black and white. That's why wow. I'm recalling it as a black and white film. But You're all open. of a sudden I, I wake up in, in half slumber to see this graphic birth of a baby footage in my face. Goulash with, was served. Every, and everybody around me screaming. It was a very memorable evening. Uh, there's a scene in this movie uh, where uh, I think the, the teenage mother and her boyfriend go to the movies and a girl on a chain gang, uh, which is Jerry Gross's previous film, uh, is on the marquee. Uh, they go to a drive-in and it's showing. Uh, a girl on a chain gang was, was a movie that Jerry Gross made in 1965. Uh, the high school in this, which is uh, it's called Claremont High, it was actually East Rockaway High School. And uh, this and Girl on a Chain Gang were, were filmed on Long Island. Uh, the actress in this, Arlene Taylor, is actually Arlene Farber from Female Animal, which uh, was sold as a European sexploitation film by Jerry Gross, but uh, he actually made it himself. And I think Arlene Farber was his girlfriend at the time. That's how she ended up in this and the Female Animal. And far from a teenager, really, but... Yeah, <laughs> cute. 
35 and pregnant. I don't think I like the sweater. <laughs> and you know, here's the uh, the sex hygiene class. The ob obligatory, the yeah. This is when you went to sleep. Because it's an educational film. It explains what you can't in language. Yeah, there were a lot of kind of hygiene and, and birth of a baby films released, uh, I guess, back in the 30s, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a they, very they popular kind back. of subgenre of movies that went around back then. Yeah. Well, they they did them in the late 60s and early 70s, also white coders, they were referred to as yeah. uh, by the exploitation distributors. Um, it was a good way to, to actually sneak full frontal nudity and sometimes hardcore into a movie. You could claim that it was a sex instructional film. Exactly. You know, just the same way the, the nudist camp films could be uh, sold as documentaries about the, the nudism lifestyle. Right. <laughs> As opposed to just movies full of naked people. Right, and beach balls. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> of different kinds. Here we have I, a Woman from 1965, uh, which was picked up by uh, Radley Metzger and released through his company Audubon in 1966. Became a big hit and, and really um, continued bringing money into the company for a long time after this. Well, this kind of launched the whole Swedish erotica craze, mm -hmm. I would say, right? Yes. This was mm -hmm. the first one? Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it was It was definitely a trendsetter. It was directed by Mac Alberg, who we saw earlier was the cinematographer on Chained Heat. Yeah, well, he went on to be uh, the house cinematographer for Charles Band for mm -hmm. years. He, he shot all of Stuart Gordon's early stuff. Um, he, he's done tons and tons of exploitation films. Kind of an unsung name. Mm -hmm. uh, his name just kind of turns up everywhere, but he's never really been much written about or, or interviewed that I'm aware of. Mac Alberg, well, he did a lot of the Charles Band movies. Yeah. And he also shot Oscar and Beverly Hills Cop 3 and Innocent Blood for... Yeah, John, uh, John, John Landis, Landis kind of picked him up and, and mm -hmm. towards the latter part of his career got him into mainstream studio films. Mm -hmm. What's so interesting, too, is that his, his camera work is, is, is excellent. I mean, mm -hmm. he's an excellent cinematographer. It's, it's really surprising that... He didn't go on. I mean, it took him so long to go on to make real Hollywood films because mm -hmm. I really think that his his style is very artsy. Well, he did some some uh, harder films than this uh, in the mid '70s. He did uh, Bel Ami with Harry Reams. Uh, so he he definitely was one of those guys who who you know dove into the the, the porn. Uh, the porn world. Uh, he's Swedish, but this is a Danish movie. Oh, Danish film, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, that that was S.E. Pearson as as Siv, uh, the star of the of the film. So I guess um, I should have said this launched the European erotica craze right. or, or Danish erotica. Well, you know, it was a, it was a it was a Swede, You know, the Swedish films were popular, and then when when uh, Denmark legalized pornography in the late '60s, then you know it was that became synonymous with sex, really. So right. you had Swedish and then Danish films, uh, and here we have an Italian film, uh, when when women had tails with uh, Santa Berger. There and there's the tail. <laughs> and lots of hair. Uh, this was made in 1970, uh, was released in 1973 by Film Ventures International. Uh, it was, uh, there's actually some, some heavyweight people behind this film. Uh, Lena Wertmuller wrote the script and Ennio Morricone did the music. And uh, in, in the film we have uh, Giuliano Gemma as the lead caveman and of course Santa Berger was a fairly big international star at the time. Uh, also in the cast is Frank Wolf, who I think this, this may have been his last or one of his last films, uh, committed suicide uh, right around this time. Uh, he had done a Radley Metzger film also uh, prior to this. He becomes the world's first skyjack victim. 
You may be shocked, but you'll never forget. Well, this was uh, this was a big, big hit in Italy, so big that it spawned a sequel called When Women Lost Their Tales in 1972. Uh, like I said, uh, Film Ventures released this in 73. They, they released When Women Lost Their Tales in 74. And, and these movies inspired a Bruno Corbucci film, a rip-off film, in 1971 titled When Men Carried Clubs and Women Played Ding Dong, <laughs> which managed to get released here in 1973 uh, by Paragon Pictures, and, and later Harry Novak picked it up and released it. And that one was rated R in 1972. Um, this one got an R rating in 73, I think. And the ultimate weapon. And I think... This, uh, I think this was one of the first European pickups by Film Ventures. I think this this was this got them started with the Italian films. Mm -hmm. uh, they did. Yeah, we're uh, going to see a couple more of those as we go yeah. on through this uh, through this Blu-ray. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. They're not really selling the 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 sex content here. They're selling the slapstick. We we mm -hmm. even saw an, uh, a manure gag a little while before. Mm -hmm. So they're really they're kind of selling the lowbrow part of the movie, the, the lowbrow comedy part. Well, I mean, Santa, oh, there's Santa, a Berger, bit. <laughs> Santa Berger wasn't really going to show that much because she was um, a big star at this point, or or had been, you know, previous to this. Mm -hmm. she okay, now that. we're getting to that part. Yeah. Like I said, the trailers had everything back in the day. Yeah. She had done the, the Sam Peckinpah film, uh, Major Dundee, and then she turned up in um, Cross of Iron for Peckinpah. Here we have the Curious Female which uh, was originally titled Three Virgins and then became, uh, I, I think, there was some, some issue with the story of this. They, they, changed, they changed the story midway through and it became love computer style. As witness the computer. Yeah, to, uh, <laughs> to kind of cash in on love American style, which was a popular TV series. Mm -hmm. And it was announced and it was supposed to premiere in Detroit under the title Love Computer Style. And, and uh, right up until a few weeks beforehand, and then uh, two weeks later, uh, it, it showed up in Detroit as The Curious Female uh, had its world premiere. Uh, it, it definitely plays like three different movies uh, kind of stitched together, made by the same people. But uh, I asked the director of this, Paul Rapp, and, and he said, no, he said it, it uh, I mean, it may have changed a little bit, but it was always, you know, we, we always meant meant it to be futuristic and then to to go into this other story i'm not sure i buy that um one other thing he said was that th this was not a hit and he felt that it would have been a bigger hit if uh, quote we'd been allowed to show pussy <laughs> <laughs> i don't know who, who disallowed him i'm wondering uh, well it was 1969 where and i think uh, the producer of the film joe solomon wanted it to to get kind of a wider release and then if it, it would have if it had been uh, a little harder. Mm -hmm. um, it was you know, it was released in 1969 with a self-applied X, and then I, I think early in 1970 they submitted it and got an R without cutting. So it, it wasn't too over the top. And back then, that's what people would, uh, the X would sometimes help a film instead of, uh, instead of derail it, because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, at that time, the X-ring was pretty taboo, and it was kind of, you know, it get people to go to the audience, like, ooh, it's an X-rated mm -hmm. film, because this was after the ratings board. Yeah. In the late 70s, early 80s, it really hurt, because a lot of newspapers would not advertise anything that was X-rated. What's funny, is some of the movie is really funny, and, and uh, it turned out that Joel Rapp, uh, Paul Rapp's brother, who um, had done, done a lot of sitcom writing, 
uh, wrote the film under a pseudonym. So oh. it makes sense. There, there are definitely some scenes that are, are very sitcom-y and very funny. Here we have The Tale of the Dean's Wife, uh, which is another sexploitation film. Uh, this one was uh, rated X in 1970. Uh, I never did see this one, but I can tell you a little bit about it. The lead in it is Rob, Roger Gentry, who uh, was a, a regular in Lee Frost's films. He turns up in The Thing with Two Heads, Black Gestapo, and Dixie Dynamite, uh, which we're going to see the trailer for later. Uh, this is just speculation, but I think Roger Gentry also does the voice for the, uh, the sadist in Slaves in Cages. But again, I don't really have anything to back that up. It's, it sounds like him. Uh, and that was a uh, that was a, a faux Danish film that Lee Frost made. Uh, also in the cast is Luann Roberts from Psycho Lover and uh, How to Succeed with Sex. And, and she also turns up in Bonnie's Kids. Um, and uh, it's funny, I, uh, I talked with Lu Luann Roberts a couple of years ago on the phone and, and uh, she, she wouldn't really discuss this film or any of the other sexploitation films that she'd done, uh, but she very robotically gave me a statement uh, concerning the film I was calling her about, which is House of Zodiac. Hmm. Um, the, uh, the actor in this who plays the professor is Eric Stern, uh, who was later seen as Caleb, the killer in The Love Butcher. There's Roger Gentry right there, I talked about earlier. There'll be no universities, no teachers, only anarchistic bastards whose hunger for power destroys everything that's good and clean. Now, get out. Okay. Okay, we'll leave. But you the uh, director of photography in this film is Henning Schellerup. Oh, who went on to do a whole bunch of things with uh, Charles E. Sellier Jr., mm -hmm. including, uh, I believe he was the DP on Silent Night, Deadly Night. And he yes. directed one or two films as well uh, later on. Yeah, I think he did some of the... Well, he did a lot of sexploitation stuff, but he didn't he do... Uh, in Search of Historic Jesus, or yeah, he did. He was he did all the, a lot of those Sun Classic yeah. Pictures things, the uh, you know the so-called documentary films. There's Eric Stern, aka the Love Butcher. <laughs> we saw some uh, political uh, or, or street uprising footage at the beginning of this. Yeah, uh, by the way, that, that's the Dean's tale, the tale right. of her, right there. <laughs> <laughs> How does that fit into all of this? Well, it's the tale of the dean's wife. Oh, no, I'm talking about the footage, so I know where that fits in. I think that's the dean's tale's wife, so there you go. What are you or trying what, to fit in? Or what fits into it, I don't know. Oh, um, dean's wife's tale, excuse me. Just to clarify that for the viewers and listeners at home, uh, then there's this, like the street unrest violence stuff at the beginning that looks like documentary footage almost. Mm. Professor Clove's wife. But back to this. This more than frank film in revealing color exposes the evil that behind the walls of the halls of Ivy. I like the tri the, uh, the tagline for this. She was voted by the student body the most likely to on or off campus. And she did again and again and again. <laughs> and she does in this trailer again and again. I'm wondering if we should time what the longest trailer on this this one is. It was quite a bit of competition. Damn. This is, these are long trailers. Yeah. And they're not long movies either. Well, they're getting all the highlights in. <laughs> <laughs> Providing hope for balding men everywhere. I think this is, uh, I think something weird put this out. Sure. Lubricated by an unsuspected dose of acid. My goodness, this oh, is long, go. isn't it? An affair to be duly recorded and photographed. Oh, we got a little bit of a, a Blood Island zoom here. Even the most 
free-thinking audience. <laughs> the spastic zoom. Jeff Franco came in and shot. <laughs> what you are witnessing is the breakdown of normal communication between the establishment, as we know it, and the new youth-oriented movement toward free thinking and free love. Which is good and which is evil? Are we headed for utopia or hurtling toward destruction? You ever made it with a dean's wife? One of my fondest dreams. Don't miss this film. It's as today is your morning paper. As honest. Sorry, folks. There's a lot of orgies, and, uh, you know, we're not spanking off or anything. We just don't know what to say. <laughs> Swear to God. With the impact of a head on collision. And on and on it goes. You know, by the time if you you know you go to a theater and you sit through enough trailers like this, you've pretty much gotten your money's worth already. You didn't even have to see the main feature. Just go in, watch the trailers, and then come ask for your money back before the actual movie starts. <laughs> Finally, a new trailer. Here we have the Minx from 1969, which is released by Canvas Films. That Lee Hessel, uh, who might be familiar to uh, a lot of genre fans, is he's the one who released The Crazies by for George Romero. Yeah, he cut, uh, apparently uh, this was completed in 1968, and uh, Hessel cut 20 minutes of dialogue and plot out of it and added 10 minutes of sex, which... And all uh, of which we're probably going to see in this trailer. Yeah. Well, this was a fairly, uh, this was a fairly big film uh, for the time uh, in the genre, it was a $120,000 budget, and uh, music by The Circle, uh, C-Y-R-K-L-E, which some mm. people may remember them for Red Rubber Ball. Oh, yes. It was their, their big hit, uh, written by Paul Simon. Uh, and Hessel had done something similar to an Isabel Sarli movie called The Female, um, you know, cut, cut slow moments, dialogue moments, plot line, and, and added new scenes of, of sex. Um, this, uh, like I said, was released in 1969 uh, and then submitted for a rating in 1971. It got an R. Uh, another interesting thing about this one was that there was a novelization published for it, uh, which leads me to a, a gratuitous plug for uh, my blog uh, that I have with Mike here. Yes, we've been working for years and years on a project uh, to list all of the movie tie-in paperbacks we can find, and we're closing in on the finishing line for that. So uh, in the meantime, Chris has started up a blog to uh, kind of promote it and give people a little taste of the kind of stuff that we're going to be covering. The Paperback Film Projector, it's called. You should check it out. We'll, uh, we'll cover all sorts of novelizations and also uh, movie tie-in editions. And uh, we'll get to the Minx at some point. And uh, also Made in Sweden, which we'll see in a little bit. There was a novelization for that as well. I always wonder if films like this have enough plot to uh, make up a complete book for the novelization. And if not, how long it took the writers to come up with a plot to fit these films. Well, I'd be curious to see the, uh, or to read the novelization for this one to see if it was written before or after Lee Hassel did the cutting and reshooting. Here's sock hits like Murray the Lie. It's a lovely game, Louise. And... Squeeze play. She fights like a minx, too. This is the film that blasts the establishment. I think that the quotes that, the, that they're promoting from the New York Daily News and Variety mm -hmm. for, for a 
Face a porno film, basically, or a pornography film, is pretty impressive. Look at that. Daily News. Variety. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, well, this they, was they, back when adult films, uh, to use the euphemism, some of them were taken fairly seriously and they were reviewed by mainstream publications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Variety gave that one a fairly decent review, as I recall. Here's the centerfold girls. Andrew Prine. The B-movie stalwart as... Um, this is kind of an omnibus film, too. It's um, He plays a deviant who wants to punish these girls for their lewd behavior. And um, you could kind of maybe stretch and see this as a bit of a precursor to uh, Death Proof from Quentin Tarantino's Grindhouse. Uh, a couple of stories about a psycho attacking women, and then in the last segment, uh, the woman, or in Tarantino's case, women, turned the tables on him. This was produced by uh, Arthur Marks General Films Corporation. He produced uh, quite a few uh, other films that were pretty interesting. One of them was uh, Bonnie's Kids. Another one was let's see Detroit 9000, which he directed and kind of became well-known again because it was re-released by Tarantino's Rolling Thunder Pictures. Candy Snatchers. Candy Snatchers, which I, I, I think is probably the best film that he's produced. Sadly, it was the one that was the least seen because it was a, a bomb, but uh, if you haven't seen the Candy Snatchers, do yourself a favor and go out and see it. Um, this, this film is a pretty unique little film because of the structure. Also, one of the stories reminds me a little bit of the film Death Game with Sandra oh, Locke with the sure. makeup of one of the characters. Right. In fact, this is the scene right here where they're making her look, she looks exactly like Sandra Locke's character in this movie, uh, Death Game. Yeah, this is a great cast. It has uh, Aldo Ray, Mike Mazurki, Jeremy Slate, um, well, it's got, Jennifer um, Ashley. As, as the final, it, it's final girl who ironically, mm-hmm. uh, or in uh, anticipation of the slasher trend, the one who survives is Tiffany Bowling, mm-hmm. who was also in uh, Arthur Marks's other films that we mentioned, Candy Snatchers and Bonnie's Kids. Uh, as we've noted on previous commentaries, a, a great talent in this kind of film. We're going to be seeing more of her a little later, who unfortunately uh, dropped out of the scene after a while. That's Jeremy Slate we just saw there. Um, and the yeah. movie, um, it was directed by John Pizer, who was uh, kind of an interesting choice to do a film as explicit as this one, considering almost all of his other credits were for television. Mm. Uh, he directed everything from The Rat Patrol to Hawaii Five-0 uh, to his last credit, which is several episodes of Tales of the Unexpected. The and here we have another Group 1 trailer. Uh, we saw teasers go to, para, to Paris uh, prior to this one. Uh, this one's The Depraved with Christina Lindbergh, who we saw earlier in They Call Her One Eye, and we're going to see next in Made in Sweden. Yeah, poor girl had all these depraved things happening to her. <laughs> this uh, this is available from Synapse uh, under the title Exposed. This was made in 1971, uh, released by Group One in 1973 uh, under this title with this campaign as The Depraved. Uh, Group One re-released it as Diary of a Rape, circa December 1975, and uh, and kept it in circulation through the 70s. And you know, the, as is uh, the norm for Group One trailers of the time, uh, it's too long, and it has, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, they they uh, they show all the best parts or what they, you know. What they consider the best exactly. parts. Yeah, this is, looks like a pretty... I've never seen this, but this looks like a pretty trashy movie. But it's the same, you know, cut in, in you know, banned in 31 countries, but now you can see it without a single cut. And then, of course, back at the time, there was no way to uh, check which countries it might have been banned in. 
Wasn't banned in any. <laughs> <laughs> but there's no way to right. do the but pre-internet. There's no yeah. way to do the research, so you just had to kind of take their word for it. Yeah, and then they they uh, you know will cut back to the poster art like they did with teasers go to Paris. Yeah, that was a group one thing. Usually, they also did it with the Lucio Fulci's The Psychic. They love to sell the, the poster in their trailers. Mm-hmm. Another thing they would do, although they don't do it with this one, and, and they didn't do it with Teasers Go to Paris either, is they they would frequently interview people coming out of the theaters. Supposedly, I mean, mm. they, they were actors that they just got, but they would stand them in front of the one sheet outside the theater and get them to say something like, you know. I didn't realize they were going to show this much nudity, and they would just keep hammering that home. You know, I I was prepared for an adult motion picture, but I didn't think there would be this much nudity. <laughs> you know, they just keep, would keep dwelling on that fact. Before it could be produced, you'll see things you never thought you'd ever see on a motion picture screen when you see the depraved. Uh, also, the uh, the version that Synapse has out is is uncut, because uh, another thing Group One would do is would cut these for uh, for length. Yeah, Group One really wouldn't cut films for for content. It was just for length because they wanted to make the movies ninety minutes, get them in and out of the theater, and save money on uh, prints. Yeah, I mean, if you're showing these at a drive-in, also you want you want them to run you know eighty eighty minutes, let's say, because you can put two or three of them together on a bill. Yeah, well, there are a number of times I've, I've heard movies were actually cut in order to be, in order to not go over into that fifth reel. Mm-hmm. You know, they cut them down to the point where it'd only be four reels long and it would save them on print manufacturing costs. Mm-hmm. That was one thing Roger Corman was very famous for is that he would have a film and it would not be any longer than a certain amount of time because he could get four reels in a case and it would save him a lot of money when shipping Prince. Got to got to give it up to those old uh, moguls. There was the poster. <laughs> All right, this looks threatening. <laughs> uh, this is Invitation to Ruin from 1968. Uh, this is a lost movie, at least in its original form. Uh, kind of can see why here. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty sleazy. Um, the. Uh, this, the story behind this was that it was made by Kurt Richter, who was a bar owner, who I think he owned the bar on Cordova Street, which was um, which was right down the street from where uh, David Friedman's office was, and also um, Armand Tamian, who ran uh, Phoenix International. I think uh, that's how he ended up the director of this. Um, but anyway, that that's the story, is that uh, Kurt Richter was the director of the original version. Um, Roger Gentry, who we just saw in The Tale of the Dean's Wife, uh, plays Jerry Sloan, who's kind of a uh, sleazy pickup artist who's hired by a mobster, uh, right, who we see right here, Ernie Pulaski, to lure women into his white slavery ring. Um, and the women are turned out by uh, Mama Lupo, who we'll see in a few minutes, and is played by an actress named Bertha Big. <laughs> <laughs> Not her birth name, I would imagine. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, Jerry Sloan, uh, Gentry's character, is so sleazy, he actually gives his girlfriend Elaine to Pulaski uh, to be turned out. 
and uh, and then go, starts dating Pulaski's daughter Allison, uh, who's played by Kathy Williams, uh, a sexploitation regular. Uh, Pulaski gets pissed off and and actually punishes uh, Sloane at the end in uh, kind of a unique way. Um, this uh, this was so popular, uh, I guess, on the S and M you know porn uh, soft porn circuit that uh, it was still getting play dates in its original form as of 1974 uh, and and you know hardcore had, had come about by then but this this was still still getting play dates that late uh, in 1975 when it I guess it had run its course as a softcore film uh, it was done as a hardcore film they, they just added hardcore inserts they shot some new sequences and it was released as invitation and uh, Gentry shot the, those new scenes himself under the pseudonym Triggeroni. <laughs> Triggeroni. Right. Jeez, Sounds that's like a really pasta. sleazy. <laughs> uh, Would you like some sauce with your Triggeroni? What's interesting is the hardcore version, Invitation, is available. And there's a kind of a, a strange combination of the two films that's available where they took the scenes from Invitation but took out the hardcore and that's available from something weird. But this version that we're seeing, the actual 1968 version of Invitation to Ruin, uh, was not, uh, is not found. It's a lost film. Here's Bertha Big as Mama Lupo. Uh, Victor Alexander uh, turns up in, the, in the, uh, the hardcore version as a detective who... Uh, oh, please put it back on. <laughs> Uh, well, I'll give away the ending to this, actually, because I don't know how many people are... It's a long trailer, and I need something to talk about. So here's a spoiler. Uh, Gentry, as I was saying, was going out with Pulaski's daughter, Allison. Uh, he he has Sloane castrated at the end of this film. Uh, in the hardcore version, he turns up uh, a eunuch. And uh, there's new footage with Desiree West in that, in that uh, version. Here we have Helga which uh, we were talking about earlier, the, uh, the Swedish and Danish invasion of the late 60s. Uh, this one was released, this one was made in 1967, released in 68 by American International. Uh, it was released without a rating. The subtitle was originally The Becoming of Human Life. It's a mixture of a medical report and uh, a semi-documentary. Uh, Ruth Gassman plays Helga. Uh, it was directed by Eric F. Bender, who followed this with Michael and Helga, a sequel, uh, in 1968, which AIP also released. They released that one in 1969. Uh, Gassman is in it as well, and, uh, and Bender, like I said, directed that one. Uh, this one was rated R. Uh, rather, Hel Michael and Helga uh, got an R rating. This one was released unrated, and they would sometimes turn up on double bills together. Here we go. For the first time, brings you the complete intimate love story of a young girl, her man, and her child. From the actual moment of conception through the actual birth of their baby. So it's really another one of those hygiene instructional movies. Exactly. Yeah, it's another white coder. And the, you know, if you ever see the posters or the ad mats, they're always, you know, they're, they're saying, you know, mothers, bring your daughters, fathers, you know, your sons must see this. And yet they said that they were not going to show any scenes in this trailer because there might be children in the audience. Right. Exactly. Kind of a schizophrenic yeah. approach, wouldn't you say? <laughs> is this for young audiences or is it not? Well, I mean, they wanted to show the trailer before certain films. Uh, you mentioned earlier the nudie, the, the uh, nudist colony films. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, here's one. Here we are. The Sun, the Place, and the Girls from 1961. 
also known as the time, the place, the girl, and re-released as Nudes of All Nations. Uh, this came out through American Film Distributing Corporation. Uh, like I said, it was made in 61, originally released in that year, I think. Uh, re-released as Nudes of All Nations in 63. Uh, the ads for this one said it was the most ambitious and authentic naturist picture ever made. Starring 13 gorgeous girls, a cast of over 70 naturists. So wait a second, if there's over 70 naturists and over only 13 of them are gorgeous girls, the rest are dudes like him, right? <laughs> I don't like that ratio. Well, you know what uh, Dave Friedman used to say, that when they would make these nudist colony films, they'd have to hire the actresses through Playboy. And uh, the interviewer asked him why. He said, have you ever seen real nudists? <laughs> <laughs> Stick the real ones in the background, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, I, I couldn't find any reviews for this movie, but then again, I didn't have access to Nude and Natural magazine, the quarterly journal of the Naturist Society. You mean that's not at your local library? No. Damn. No. We, we, we actually had it, but we had to cancel the subscription. Too many sadly. complaints, guys, right? Yeah. A, lot of, a, lot of actually, a lot of directors started off making these uh, nude volleyball films. Jack Hill was one, and in fact, he told me France Ford Coppola helped him shoot some of the scenes. They were both naked playing volleyball as they're shooting stuff. So people, you can be Francis Ford Coppola making nude volleyball films to being a, an Oscar-winning director. So don't turn it down if you get offered a nude volleyball movie. Here's Fairy Tales, uh, 1978. Now we're talking. <laughs> Charles, Charles Band production. And uh, we just saw uh, the three S&M women singing there. Uh, the one on the right was the, uh, the actress uh, Evelyn Guerrero from the Cheech and Chong movies. And, and uh, Hey, you guys! <laughs> there's also a uh, very young Linnea Quigley. Uh, yeah. made her, I believe it's her film debut in this film. And here's uh, Nye Bonet, who later made Nocturna and Hoodlums. With Mac Alberg. Yeah. Exactly. Who we were discussing before. I'm not sure if Linnea is in here anywhere. Um, she's in the I can't movie. Remember I don't know if, if she's in the trailer. I though. can't remember if we'll see her in the trailer. But mm. this was um, before she went on to do, uh, of course, Return of the Living Dead and any number of other uh, horror films, which made her a scream queen legend of the 80s. This was released with a self-applied X rating originally. And then in 79, it was submitted for an R. Uh, it was directed by Harry Tampa. I put that in quotes because it's actually Harry Hurwitz the director of The Projectionist. Um, Martha Reeves of Martha Reeves and the Vandellas shows up in this film as Aunt Laveau <laughs> and uh, sings a, a, has a, a memorable uh, song uh, in the film. She, she comes up out of a, like a bubbling cauldron, I think, as I recall. Um, here's Ann Gabus as Snow White. Yeah, because I, I have not seen this one, but I have seen uh, Cinderella, which is the follow-up. Uh, which actually has some really good songs in it. It's a musical, and, and the songs are legitimately clever and funny. That was actually first. Oh, this was before this was one. The year okay, before, yeah, the Michael Pataki did that one. Yes, with yeah. with the beautiful Rainbow Smith as Cinderella. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, the Exum Films people of whom I spoke before showed a beautiful print of Cinderella uh, at a festival recently, and uh, I would love to see that and Fairy Tales come out in really good DVD editions. Didn't you say Martha Reeves had a very interesting story of going to see it with her family and not knowing oh, what? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she, uh, she, I think she took her church group or something to see it. it was, <laughs> it's in her autobiography. Uh, she tells the story. So you, you should, uh, I think the, the book is called Dancing in the Streets. Uh, and she, yeah, she tells a funny story about that. You know, I mentioned Ann Gabis playing Snow White. I think she was the wife of John Biner at one point. Oh. Um, 
Also, you know, Professor Irwin Corey is in uh, Fairy Tales, and Bob Statz, who we saw uh, briefly there from Putney Swope, uh, he played Mr. War Toys in that. And he's also in The Projectionist and The Comeback Trail for Harry Hurwitz. Uh, here we have Flesh Gordon, which uh, I enjoy. I, I think it's a, a neat little movie. Well, this is um, a real cult film for science fiction fans, not only for spoofing uh, Flesh Gordon in the, or Flash Gordon in the adult style, but also for being uh, an early credit of a number of special effects artists who would go on to great acclaim. Um, Jim Danforth, who was actually already fairly established, worked on this. Uh, David Allen, Doug Beswick, Dennis Muren, who's won multiple Oscars as part of Industrial Light and Magic. And stop-motion buffs love this because there's a lot of stop-motion creatures, as you can see here, mm -hmm. many of them direct homages to creatures created by Ray Harryhausen. Uh, we saw a sword fight with a creature that seems very much inspired by the sword-fighting skeletons in the Sinbad movies. And there's a sp uh, variation on uh, Talos from T uh, Jason and the Argonauts in here as well. Uh, again, I'm, I'm going to say this a lot of times uh, today, but uh, this was released with a self-applied X and uh, got an R in 1975. Um, this was initially released in 74, but it was a troubled production. It's, it began uh, filming in 1971, and uh, it was pro prolonged to the point where uh, in de late De uh, December 72, uh, the producer held a screening, uh, Howard Zim held a screening at the Beverly Theater, which is now the New Beverly, and uh, at three in the morning and charged $50 a ticket and he did that just because he wanted it to qualify for an Academy Award nomination for Best uh, Special Effects. Uh, and the Academy didn't want or didn't feel comfortable nominating uh, a, a, you know, X-rated film, so they ended up changing the award that year to an honorary Academy Award, and, and they gave it to the, the uh, Poseidon Adventure. Yeah, I just remembered something about Flesh Gordon, that uh, stop-motion creature at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, is voiced by Craig T. Nelson. Oh, really? Yeah, he was a, a stand-up comedian at the time, and they brought him in and just had him ad-lib a bunch of funny lines for that monster. <laughs> is he billed? No. Mm -mm. Yeah, just like John Larroquette narrating uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm -hmm. Speaking of uh, homages to visual effects, we have here Star Crash, which was directed by Luigi Cozzi, who uh, had actually started doing uh, giallo films. He collaborated in the early 70s with Dario Argento, uh, went on to direct his own giallo called The Killer Must Kill Again, and then um, he wanted to do a science fiction film, so he pitched an idea to a producer named Nat Waksberger, who wound up turning it down. But then when Star Wars came out subsequently and became a huge international hit, Waksberger came back to Kotze and said, let's do a science fiction film, but not the one that you were pitching, let's do a Star Wars type movie. Um, at the time, uh, Star Wars had not yet been released in Italy, but Cozzi did get a hold of a copy of the novelization, and so he put uh, this film together, starring the beautiful Carolyn Monroe as Stella Starr. This actually has a, a really interesting cast. Uh, you saw Christopher Plummer there briefly. He reportedly shot all of his scenes in a day or so. You have uh, Marjo Gortner in there. Uh, I believe this was originally supposed to be an AIP picture, and Marjo Gortner had done a whole bunch of movies for them, including Food of the Gods, due to his friendship with Lou Arkoff. And uh, Joe Spinell is in here, too, as the villain. He was also the dialogue director on the film, which uh, makes it kind of ironic that his performance in the movie is dubbed. Katsi loved uh, his visual effects. There's, there's tons of them in here. There's stop motion, there's uh, optical printing, miniatures, all kinds of stuff. Uh, not a great film, but certainly a very flashy one that has quite a cult following.
Dark Star was director John Carpenter's first feature-length film. He made it while he was a student at USC with Dan O'Bannon. Dan O'Bannon co-wrote it with Carpenter and contributed to the special effects and starred in the film as the character Pinback. They took the film to Jack Harris, a distributor who is best known to genre fans for producing the original Blob. According to the book John Carpenter, The Prince of Darkness, Carpenter stated that Harris saw something in the film and wanted to make a space movie. The original cut ran 68 minutes, which wasn't long enough for theatrical release, so Harris gave them a little extra funding to shoot an additional 15 minutes. Carpenter prefers the original version, as he didn't like Harris's suggestions. Among the new footage added, more control room sequences, more scenes with the beach ball, an additional scene with the bomb, and most noteworthy, the asteroid sequence, which was shot at Harris's insistence, as he thought all space movies should have them. Carpenter didn't feel the same way. The very long post-production schedule created a strained relationship with Carpenter, Harris, and O'Bannon. In fact, Harris was hated so much by O'Bannon that he left a little message for him in the movie. If you look close enough, you might see a computer screen flash, Fuck Harris. Carpenter was a bit more diplomatic, but he has stated that he wasn't used to having to deal with somebody very hostile and very stupid. By stupid, I mean his concerns weren't about what makes a movie good. He didn't agree with most of the ideas because he was an old shows business type of guy. This film should have led to a great continued partnership between O'Bannon and Carpenter, as both went on separately to create great films. Carpenter, of course, went on to direct Halloween, The Thing, and numerous other genre classes, while O'Bannon went on to write Alien and also direct Return of the Living Dead. However, they never made another film after this together, which was a shame. Carpenter went on record stating that Dan O'Bannon was a thief and that if you had an idea, he would steal it, utilize it, and not credit you. He also said he stole from a lot of other movies. However, the main reason that Carpenter didn't get along with O'Bannon is that O'Bannon tried to claim credit for the film after it was completed. Jack Harris took the film to Bryanston Releasing, who was a small distributor who distributed the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Deep Throat. They were well known for their mafia ties. In fact, if you look at the film Inside Deep Throat, they're actually talked about it in some detail. happening. Oh, here comes the Raiders of Atlantis from uh, Ruggiero Deodato, uh, the man behind uh, Cannibal Holocaust and a number of uh, very extreme horror films. This one's a little less extreme, but it's, it's a really goofy film. It kind of changes tack every 20 minutes or so. It starts off as a science fiction film here where these guys uh, discover the rise of Atlantis, and then once it uh, gets to the land, it... Um, once it uh, reach, makes landfall, it suddenly becomes a Road Warrior slash Mad Max knockoff, as you can see here, uh, which is probably the reason that this movie's alternate title is Atlantis Interceptors. It's probably called that for no other reason than that Mad Max drives the V8 Interceptor. So I guess maybe they figured some of the cachet would rub off. <laughs> it's got kind of an eclectic cast. Uh, Christopher Connolly is the lead. Uh, he had also been in 1990 The Bronx Warriors uh, by Enzo Castellari. And his last film was another Italian-produced film called Night of the Sharks, uh, co-starring Treat Williams. Uh, his co-star, who you'll see here, is Tony King, who was in Cannibal Apocalypse and The Last Hunter, among many other films, I believe. Yeah, well, he, um, I think he played football with his brother. They were both on the Buffalo Bills. And uh, he later uh, had a movie career and was in several big studio films. He was in Sparkle and also a Report to the Commissioner. And did, did a couple of Fred Williamson movies like Bucktown. 
And uh, by the way, you saw the, the leader of the villains, uh, just like in uh, Road War, you had the guy, the humongous we mentioned, with the hockey mask. Here you have a guy with a transparent mask who I believe is referred to on screen as Crystal Skull. Uh, no relation to the one that Indiana Jones went on the hunt for many years later. Uh, as you can see there, George Hilton is also in this movie. Uh, he did several Jalo films with Sergio Martino in the 70s. Ivan uh, Rasimov is in this, who also did some cannibal films. And in a small role somewhere in this film is Michele Sawavi, the director of the Demons films. Hmm. Uh, the screenwriters on this were Tito Carpi, who wrote countless Italian exploitation films, uh, including uh, The Last Survivor, um, which Deodato also directed, and Vincenzo Manino was a co-scriptor, also a veteran of uh, Italian exploitation movies. I just remember that uh, Tony King was on a TV series with Jack Palance called Bronk oh. in the mid seventies, And he was also in The Toy. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. might as well clarify, uh, Suave only did uh, The Church, not The Demons films. That was uh, Lamberto Oh, I'm Baba. sorry. I, I don't know why I, why I got that wrong. Sorry, folks. But he's most known to us horror fans uh, as the director of Della Morte, Della Morte, Morte. right. Sorry. Big mistake. Don't know how I did He that. did do a Demons film because, hey, Demons 3 is also known as The Church, so <laughs> that does count. No excuse. Uh, big mistake. Sorry, everyone. I'm going to hand this over to Mike because he's Mr. Mentango. Uh, not exactly. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, Matango uh, is the film was probably known to more people for many years under its uh, the title under which it was shown on television uh, as a part of a package from AIP TV, Attack of the Mushroom People. Uh, it was also called Matango Fungus of Terror, which is kind of unfortunate because uh, despite those schlocky titles, this is actually a much more character-oriented film than uh, the films uh, that were usually coming out of Toho at the time. Um, it's basically, it's a story of these people who uh, wind up on this island and they discover this abandoned ship which is full of this strange fungus and um, they're eventually driven by hunger to consume the fungus and it starts to transform them into these strange quote-unquote mushroom people. Uh, But it's really mostly about uh, the way these characters interact and how their little society breaks down. It's based on a short story called Voice in the Night by William Hope Hodgson uh, which was actually previously adapted by the uh, TV series Suspicion in an episode directed by Arthur Hill, which marked the second screen appearance of James Coburn. Uh, and uh, it's actually, uh, the short story is pretty close to this. It is about people who uh, discover a lost ship and eat fungus, and uh, weird stuff happens from there. Uh, the film is kind of a uh, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon of uh, Japanese monster film stars. Uh, the cast includes Akiro Kubo, who also appeared in Monster Zero, Son of Godzilla and Destroy All Monsters, and has said that this is the favorite film of the ones that he did for Toho. Uh, Kumi Mizuno, who is in Frankenstein Conquers the World, Monster Zero, Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, and War of the Gargantuas. Hiroshi Koizumi, who is in Mothra, Godzilla vs. Mothra, Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, and others. And Kenji Sahara, who is in Rodan, Mothra, King Kong vs. Godzilla, and countless others. It was made in 1963, but AIP uh, TV, I think, premiered it uh, in April of 66. Yes. World of the future. And Um, And now, a dramatic reading of a portion of the theme song from this next film. What can it be? What is the reason? Is this the end of all that we've done? Is this just something in your head? Will you believe it when you're dead? Green Slime! Yes, this is the Green Slime. Um, And undoubtedly one of the best-known elements of this film is the title song, uh, which is performed by Richard Dalvey, who uh, was a veteran of some surf rock bands at the time. 
the Green Slime was directed by uh, Kinji Fukasaku, um, who had quite an interesting career. Uh, shortly after this, he went on to direct uh, the Japanese scenes of another Japanese-American production, Tora, Tora, Tora. He also did a bunch of very highly regarded uh, Yakuza and crime films. And then more recently, he directed Battle Royale, the notorious uh, schoolgirls and boys killing each other film, uh, which was unseen in the U.S. for quite some time, but may have finally gotten its official release in the U.S. by the time this disc comes out. Uh, this was sort of an unofficial sequel to a series of Gamma 3 science fiction films made in Italy, uh, which were directed by Antonio Margheriti. The producers, Walter H. Manley and uh, Ivan Reiner, then went on to Japan and made a deal with the Toei Company to produce this one, the uh, original Japanese title of which translates to Gamma 3 Operation Outer Space. Uh, the leads are Robert Horton, Richard Jekyll, and Luciana Paluzzi, uh, who had just come off uh, the James Bond film Thunderball at the time. And the Japanese version actually is shorter than the U.S. version and omits a love triangle subplot between the three of them. And uh, in fact, when the movie opened in the U.S., a number of critics claimed that that love triangle was really boring and a distraction from the action uh, that you're seeing here. Um, the creatures in the film uh, were actually performed by children in those rubber costumes, which may explain why they kind of flail around a lot on screen, because I'm not, <laughs> it doesn't look like the kids were given an awful lot of direction to perform them. I'm very disappointed you didn't mention Kenji Fukasaka's Message from Space. Um, <laughs> well, there's a reason for that. Not the best film on his resume, but there it is, Message from Space as well. Here's They Came from Beyond Space from 1967. Uh, this is an Amicus production, uh, which was released through Embassy Pictures in the summer of 1967, co-billed with The Terror Knots, another Amicus production. Uh, this was directed by Freddie Francis and uh, was based on the novel The Gods Hate Kansas by Joseph Millard. Uh, Millard later wrote The Man With No Name books, uh, which were based on the Sergio Leone westerns with Clint Eastwood. Uh, well, he, wrote, he started off writing the novelization for, I think it was the, uh, f uh, for a few dollars more, and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and then that led to a series of Man With No Name paperbacks. But he kind of became a, a, a specialist in western uh, Western novelizations, or you know, novelizations of Western movies like Cahill, U.S. Marshal, Shadows Land, uh, Good Guys and the Bad Guys, The Hunting Party, Macho Callahan, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and uh, this was uh, this was produced by Max Rosenberg and Milton Sabatsky of Amicus. So this was an Amicus film. It was. Yep. Mm -hmm. oh, you didn't know that? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Just uh, clarifying. Just clarifying. <laughs> Um, I, th I think uh, it doesn't really have the, uh, it really hasn't stood the test of time uh, the way Terror Knots has. That seems to get more play. You know, uh, we mentioned Steve Seekley on the day of the Triffids before. Mm -hmm. It's worth mentioning Freddie Francis actually directed a good portion of that film. When it came in under running time, uh, they hired Freddie Francis to come in and shoot all that stuff on the lighthouse, uh, which is some of the best stuff in that film. Hmm. So now we're on to uh, an even lower budget uh, cult classic uh, rubber monster movie called The Deadly Spawn from 1983. Uh, this was a uh, $25,000 monster movie shot in New Jersey, uh, a collaboration between uh, producer Ted Bohus, uh, John Dodds, the special effects creator who created all the creatures that you're going to see here, and a local theater director named Douglas McKeown who wrote the script as well. Um, the film was uh, shot in uh, the house of Greg Hilde uh, Tim Hildebrandt, rather, one of the uh, executive producers, uh, who is also well-known as an illustrator with his brother Greg. They were known as the Hildebrandt brothers, and they were major fantasy illustrators at the time. 
Uh, the little boy you're going to see here is Charles George Hildebrandt, who is Tim's son, who expressed an interest in acting, so they cast him in the film, um, partially because he would be right there living in the house already and uh, could be immediately called into work when they were shooting. Um, the creatures, as I mentioned, were created by John Dodds. The gore that we're also going to see here was created by an artist named uh, Arnold Gargiulo. The movie opened in uh, 1983 in New York, a week after The Evil Dead. I recall uh, going to see Evil Dead one weekend, this one the following weekend, and despite the competition, Deadly Spawn did pretty well um, in its brief release in New York. And I went to see this movie at the uh, now-defunct National Theater in Times Square, where in the lobby they had John Dodd's big giant spawn creature just sitting there for anyone who happened to want to take their picture with it. And in fact, uh, as me and my friend were exiting the lobby, uh, a couple of Japanese tourists came in and had us take, our, take their picture with their camera of themselves posing with the spawn monster. It's interesting we're seeing the rain there. Um, in a recent interview that the director did for Fangoria, he mentioned that one of the reasons he decided to set it during a rainstorm was that it was going to be shot piecemeal over weekends and things like that. So he wanted there to be like a constant sound of rain outside to kind of unite the scene subconsciously in the audience's head because they're going to be shooting it on so many different days. Unfortunately, at the time that they shot it, New Jersey was going through a serious drought, and it actually became illegal to use a water hose. So for scenes where they had to fake rain uh, like that using a water hose, they had to have someone looking out in case any authorities might come by and uh, get them busted for that. And now we come to the dark. Um... Now, uh, here is uh, Roger Ebert's words on The Dark. This is without a doubt the dumbest, most inept, most maddeningly unsatisfactory thriller of the last five years. One and a half stars. Which makes you wonder how bad a film has to be for Roger to give it one star. Uh, one reason this movie might be considered so maddeningly unsatisfactory is that it had quite a torture production. Um, Eddie, you can shed a little light on this, I believe. Yes, the film was produced by Dick Clark for uh, Film Ventures International, FBI. Toby Hooper was brought in to direct, and he was fired a week after filming and replaced by John Bogcardos. This is not the first time that John Bogcardos had replaced a director by uh, Dick Clark. Dick Clark also fired director Mark Rosman from the film Night Shadows, a.k.a. Mutant. The film was, was very troubled because the original story was, a, was with voodoo, if I'm not mistaken, a, a walking corpse. And after the success of Alien and these outer space films, the film was retooled to give it an alien uh, from outer space on the run sort of thing. Uh, well, this actually, I believe the it was the success of uh, Star Wars that inspired the switch to an alien because there's a novelization for the film that was written by Max Franklin and published in June of 1978, and that's based on the original screenplay. And uh, if you read that, you can get the story that it was originally supposed to be told, which is indeed about a corpse that's raised from the dead through voodoo and is sent out to kill people. And in here, uh, it's transformed into what I believe our uh, variety referred to as a werewolf in blue jeans from outer space <laughs> that kills people with uh, laser beams out of its eyes. Uh, Toby Hooper went through kind of a run of bad luck. Uh, after the dark, he had been attached to a movie called Venom, on which he was replaced by Piers Haggard. And then later, he was also the original director on Return of the Living Dead, which, of course, uh, Dan O'Bannon took over, who wrote the script. He took over as director as well and uh, made that movie the uh, classic that it is. And uh, also among the cast that we mentioned at The Dark is a small role by Philip Michael Thomas, later to go on to fame on Miami Vice. I think Temple of Schlock contributor Chris Gilpin is, uh, can, can be glimpsed in The Dark also. Oh, really? In the background in one scene, yeah. Uh, now we get to The Evil, which is also a film that underwent uh, a little bit of tampering. Um, 
Certain sources have claimed that the cl uh, climactic scenes featuring Victor Buono as the devil were cut out of certain prints because audiences found them silly. But um, it's been those scenes were restored for all these subsequent video versions, so you can enjoy uh, Buono's performance. Uh, he plays a devil uh, dressed all in white in a white room spouting profundities, which have led to a few people uh, comparing him to the architect character that you saw in The Matrix. Yeah, that's a, I, I, you know, Mike, I kind of agree with you on that. You know, I think that those scenes should kind of, I understand why they were cut. The film starts off, it's really well made, and, and then it completely just does a complete 180 and goes in a different direction with the supernatural element where they're with Victor Bruno. Um, I think the film is very well made until that point. The, the one thing that's very good about this film that I like that's unusual is that the it, these people that are in the house they're it, they're hired to clean it up because they're mental patients because they want to make it into a a I guess a treatment center and that adds a little interesting dynamic to the to the cast you know them being mentally un, unable to deal with this it has a very good cast of of character actors the most well known probably being Richard Crenna right there um, there's some good special effects it's a good ghost story but the ending with Victor Bruno does kind of do some damage to it I think. Now the uh, the screenplay for this was written by Donald G. Thompson, who also acts in the film as Galen Thompson, and he went on to write another haunted house film called Superstition, which is much more graphic in its violence than this one, although both of them contain scenes of circular saw mayhem, so uh, clearly he had some kind of fixation on that particular power tool. Other uh, cast members in this are, are uh, Andrew Prine. He's back again. Yeah, who we saw earlier in the Centerfold Girls. Lynn Moody, uh, Robert Vajaro. And uh, with, uh, Cassie Yates, I think, is in this also. Joanna Pettit, Victor Bono. You know, Bono's mentioned in the trailer, so I'm yeah. sure you know if people did happen to see one of those truncated prints after seeing the trailer, they might wonder what happened to Victor Bono. <laughs> and now we come to The Victors, which is a film by Charles B. Pierce. Um, this is one of a number of films he made that were based on true stories. Uh, the Legend of Boggy Creek was one, Town the Dreaded Sundown was another. Uh, you can see both of those trailers on one of the previous 42nd Street Forever DVDs, plug plug. And uh, this was also based on a true, uh, true crime case that was in a true crime magazine that someone showed him. A story of um, someone that uh, the authorities tried to evict from a house, who instead wound up uh, hiding down in the cellar and uh, eventually coming up and killing somebody. Uh, the problem, as you can see here, the, the trailer gives away a major spoiler, but if you see the film, I don't think it's very much of a surprise. No, it's a twist that you'll see coming a mile away. There's Vic Morrow. Yeah, there's Vic Morrow. Yeah, and the, the, I, as Charles Pierce based a lot of his... There it is, actually. There's the yeah. spoiler. Mm -hmm. uh, Charles Pierce... And I think this was scene was kind of used a little later in another film called Deadly Blessing. Um, the problem I have with this film is, you know, Charles Pierce bases a lot of his films on supposed real-life cases, but I don't really believe they're that real, and uh, they defy the belief. Well, I mean, Boggy Creek was based on sightings, you know, and, and was structured as something of, of people talking about scenes in which they claim to see have seen a creature. Town the Dreaded Sundown had a very strong uh, historical background. Obviously, everything in his movies was somewhat fictionalized, but... Um, the Bugle, especially, and the Town Dread Sundown. Well, yeah, <laughs> but there, the elements are. But um, one thing that... Uh, Pierce did not consider this one of his best films, but he was very proud of the lighting. Uh, he really liked magic hour lighting, so one of the things he did while shooting the Evictors was to set up very large reflectors all around the house where they were shooting that could reflect the magic hour light into the house. So um, even if the plotting doesn't completely hold water, it is a good-looking film. 
Uh, and then from that to The Undertaker and His Pals, not necessarily <laughs> a very good-looking film. No, not at all. This was a, 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 an attempt of an H.D. Lewis ripoff. And uh, it's a very short film, and it's edited in such a way that it's hard to tell if it's, if it's poorly edited or censored. It's, it's a very goofy film where a lot of the characters are named after, uh, I guess, dishes. One lady, Miss Poultry. Which, uh, Mike, I think you can... Well, there's Miss Poultry. There, another girl is named Lamb. It's... It's kind of like an imitation, um, as you said, Herschel Gordon-Lewis or Ted V. Michaels film, uh, directed by the marvelously named, I believe, believe it's T.L.P. Swicegood. <laughs> I'm not sure what uh, Mr. Swicegood's other credits are, but um, if they're anything like this, I don't believe they're necessarily worth hunting down. Uh, came out in 1966, uh, played triple bills with the embalmer and the corpse grinders. And, and there's Jerry Lewis on the picture on the <laughs> thing, it looks like. Wow! Uh, and it was it was pretty gory for its time, like like uh, we've mentioned before, uh, it being a cash-in on the Herschel Gore and Lewis films. Uh, when it was submitted for a rating in 1972, it did get an R. Yeah, and the film, if I'm not mistaken, runs barely over an hour so it's it's really hard to tell if it's been censored or just poor editing because i mean in the middle of the scene it's just like some cuts happening it's really hard to tell and as you can see here you got the the uh predecessors here to psychomania and their helmets <laughs> yeah well it looks like it's trying to to kind of cash in on different trends you've got gore you've got bikers in there doesn't add up to much though no Uh, now we're uh, heading over to Europe for The Devil's Nightmare, which is a... <laughs> it's a public domain classic. <laughs> Indeed. Um, this is an Italian-Belgian co-production. Uh, the uh, director of record is Jean Brisme, who directed a lot of French TV in the 50s and 60s. Uh, but I found at least one uh, online source that claims that there were actually three directors on the film. Uh, the first director credited, uh, the one who started it, was someone named, and I believe it's pronounced André Bonnevel, um, who did uh, a number of major films in the 50s and 60s. He had a pretty big career. He did uh, some Fantomas films and also some of the OSS 117 spy films, uh, which kind of came back into the consciousness recently because uh, a couple of spoofs of the OSS 117 films were made by a director uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, but is very much in the news because he also made the film The Artist that at the moment is being talked up for a lot of uh, Academy Awards consideration. He was replaced uh, by Jean Brisme, who did the bulk of the shooting, and then uh, the final director on it, apparently, was Patrice Rome, who did some Gestapo and women's prison movies in the 70s and 80s, and also did some softcore work under the wonderful pseudonym Homer Bingo. The uh, cast of the film includes uh, Erica Blanc, who is in uh, Mario Bava's Kill Baby Kill, among others, and uh, the wonderfully named Daniel Emilfork, who uh, kind of has a Reggie Nalder look going for him. Um, and his credits also include uh, City of Lost Children uh, by uh, Caro and Junet, who loved unusual faces, and uh, he certainly was one uh, for them to cast in that film. The, uh, the protagonists in this film are a group of tourists who uh, are supposed to represent the seven deadly sins and uh, fall victim to various horrible fates, as we're seeing here. Dummy death. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> This, plug, plug. <laughs> this was released by Hemisphere Pictures in 1972. Uh, they re-released it on a double bill within the Devil's Garden as a devil combo in 1974. Even though uh, In the Devil's Garden has nothing to do with the devil, it's, it's actually about a rapist on the loose. It was originally called Assault, but In the Devil's Garden was uh, definitely its much better known title. 
Uh, yeah, and then uh, when Hemisphere went out of business, um, Motion Picture Marketing picked up a few of their titles, and this was one of them, and they re-released it in 1980 as Vampire Playgirls. Are there Vampire Playgirls in this? <laughs> well, you know, they would just stick Apollonia and a couple of the other models in front of, you know, some cardboard cemetery and, and you know, gravestones. There he is. Look at that face. That's a face that's made for the genre. Yeah, this film became pretty popular because of its public domain status. I, I mean, I believe it played a lot of UHF channels, and uh, it was in budget bins for a long time. When mm-hmm. it was a very, you know, it's 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 a it's a good uh, introduction to people for, with Euro horror. Because I mean, this is a perfect example of what a Euro horror film would be back then. The first time I saw it was on like four in the morning, like on Buffalo TV station. It is amazing stuff like that could play on TV. You'd never see this today. <laughs> well, that's how, you know, some people of our generation discovered these things and these horribly cut TV prints, and now in this day and age we can rediscover them uncut. In Pennsylvania, in this quiet community of simple farmers, untouched by time, a gruesome secret has been protected for generations. Into this world come three young... Um, and here we have Deadly Blessing, uh, the first major studio film by Wes Craven. This film was produced uh, by John Peters and Peter Goober. Uh, John Peters was best known as uh, Barbara Streisand's hairdresser. He used his clout with her to become a film producer. He did produce this uncredited. Uh, the producers of record are Micheline and Max Keller, who had produced a TV movie called Summer of Fear with Linda Blair uh, that was very successful and I guess led him to take on this project. Um, coincidentally, uh, Linda Blair was nominated for a Razzie Award for Hell Knight the same year that Ernest Borgnine was nominated for a Razzie for this film. Uh, even though he's actually kind of fun to watch. Uh, he's the leader of this um, Hittite-esque religious cult that causes trouble for these three women uh, who come to visit. Um, though he probably uh, regretted the casting of Sharon Stone in this film, in one of her, ma- her uh, first major roles, because uh, the story has it that um, on the set of this film, Sharon Stone first got to know uh, Craven's then fiance, soon to be wife Mimi, uh, wound up having an affair with Mimi, uh, which led to the dissolution of uh, Craven and Mimi's marriage. And the story goes that uh, the day their divorce became finalized, Sharon Stone sent Wes Craven a dozen black roses. Um, there's a bit of uh, quite a bit of animal mayhem, as you'll see here. There's a snake in the tub, and there's a scene also in this trailer with a spider falling into Sharon Stone's open mouth. Um, she was very skittish, understandably, about doing that scene, though uh, Craven eventually, I guess, managed to talk her into it. Those who would defy its power. Here it goes. Whoops. You can see maybe why Sharon Stone was a little bit uh, upset with Craven over that one. They even had the spider defanged, which of course meant it wouldn't be able to eat and thus wouldn't be able to live very long. Uh, but she still was not uh, completely comfortable doing that scene, so... There may have been a bit of uh, bad blood there. Uh, there's kind of an animal-centric film. You also saw the scene with the snake in the tub, uh, which anticipates the scene in Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street, where Freddy Krueger's glove rises up in the bathtub with Heather Langenkamp. Uh, Wes Craven had a, a big problem with this film, with, with them at the end, is that they wanted a, a crazy ending. So, of course, there's this character in the film called the Incubus, which is this mythical creature which probably doesn't exist. At the end of the movie, it comes out of nowhere and... Uh, pulls the character, uh, the Marla Jensen character into the floor and it just completely ruins the film. And this would be the first of three films in a row where Wes Craven would have an ending very similar to this. So now here uh, we come to Rabid, which is uh, David Cronenberg's second feature film after uh, they came from within, a.k.a. Shivers. Um, Shivers was a, a big hit in Canada. It was um, 
you know, one of the first, uh, I think it may have been the first Canadian horror film to be successful, but it attracted an incredible amount of notoriety. There were a number of uh, media pundits who were uh, complaining that this is not what Canadian cinema should be. So even though uh, Shivers had been a big hit, uh, the producers at Cinepix, in order to get financing for Rabbit, had to package it with two other films in order to get the budget raised for it. Uh, one of the producers on the film was Ivan Reitman, uh, who would go on, of course, to be much better known for comedy. And uh, he was the one who wanted Marilyn Chambers, uh, the softcore star, to star in this film. David Cronenberg had wanted Sissy Spacek to star in it, but Ivan Reitman thought that uh, getting Marilyn Chambers in there would give it some sex appeal. And uh, I guess he was right. Um, she plays kind of the typhoid Mary of an outbreak of a rabies-like disease, which is spread when she embraces people and this uh, vampiric parasitical organism in her armpit uh, infects them with this rabies-like madness, which, as you can see here, spreads throughout Montreal. When the movie first opened in that territory, it only opened in two English-language theaters. It opened in ten theaters in French under its alternate title, which translates simply to Rage. The film is very, very impressive for its budget. I believe it was about $500,000, but the scope is absolutely amazing. It really feels a lot bigger than it is. Um, the film was the last use of stock music, as just like Shivers, Cronenberg uh, used uh, stock music, and uh, I believe Ivan Reitman, as you said, was credited as music uh, supervisor. Um, the Mall, which you saw earlier in the film, was also used in the very underrated Silent Partner, and David Cronenberg would go back a couple of years later and use it for the opening in Scanners. And uh, that was another trailer, by the way, that contains a spoiler. Basically, the last shot of the movie is in the trailer. Um, <laughs> you no won't necessarily know it unless you've seen it, but yes, that was a, a little spoiler in there. But presumably, if you were enough of a fan of this kind of film to get this disc, you've already seen Rabid, so that won't be as big a problem. And if you haven't seen Rabbit, this disc is not for you. Um, next brings us up to Eye of the Cat, which is a, a, an unusual film uh, from the 60s. It was written by Joe Stefano, who uh, wrote the, the screenplay for Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. It stars uh, Michael Sarenson as a young man who tries to go and, and claim an inheritance. You know the basic story of the man trying to kill his older, uh, there you go, wheelchair-bound uh, lady there to get an inheritance. However, the lady has a lot of cats, and uh, he seems to have a phobia of these cats. Um, at the end of the, the theatrical version, many, many cats come out of the woodwork and, of course, terrorize them. However, when they wanted to premiere this on television years later, they thought the ending was a little bit too uh, intense. So they went back two years later, or a year or whatever later, and refilmed the ending with one cat. Hey, has anyone ever thought of murdering a rich old lady in a reflection pool? And uh, sadly, I've, this is the only version that's in circulation through bootlegs. Uh, the theatrical version has never been released officially, or even either version of these films have been released officially. It's a real shame because it's a pretty well-made movie, uh, very psychological, and that's no surprise coming from Joe Stefano. Well, I should mention that uh, just recently at Lincoln Center, as part of their Scary Movies Festival, they managed to dig up the original print of Eye of the Cat and showed it, and uh, I didn't get to go, but I heard from a few people who saw it and thought it was great, that it's a real kind of unsung classic of 60s horror cinema. Um, I mean, it's awfully difficult to get a cat attack scene to play convincingly, but uh, this one does it. Okay, next up we have Mark of the Witch, uh, and pretty much the only time I've ever seen or read anything about this movie was when it was a dog of the week on at the movies back in... Uh, I guess it must have been the early 80s on one of its re-releases because this movie was shot in Texas around 1969 or 1970. It was directed by Tom Moore, who went on to 
direct Return to Boggy Creek, uh, the sequel to The Legend of Boggy Creek, which we referred to a little while ago. Uh, however, here I would like to uh, correct something on the IMDb. The Tom Moore who directed Mark of the Witch and Return to Boggy Creek is not the same one who directed On Broadway Grease, uh, the Tony Award-winning Night Mother, went on to direct the film version of Night Mother, and then went on to a big career uh, directing uh, movies and television. I somehow doubt very much that he's the same Tom Moore who did Mark of the Witch and Return to Boggy Creek. However, if I'm wrong and Tom Moore wants to uh, get in touch and correct me on that, please feel free. I'd love to know. Uh, but as of now, someone really needs to go on IMDb and fix that. Uh, this this was made, like Mike said, in 1969, premiered in El Paso uh, on September 30th, 1970, and uh, went out with a GP rating, which I believe was only around for about a year and a half. Yeah, GP. it became PG very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, very funny movie, and I think it's intentionally funny. I mean, the opening scene is hilarious, uh, the one that, that sets up the whole curse and uh, you know, once it moves to a college, uh, it, it gets even funnier, I think. But it's, it's all very intentional. Well, the one thing I remember that um, Roger Ebert said about the movie is that it's set on a college campus and it looks like it was made as a class project. <laughs> it's better than that. <laughs> so um, now we come to, uh, this was a bit of a trend uh, back in the 70s in which the trailers for movies were actually kind of man-on-the-street interview sequences set outside the theaters where these movies were supposedly playing. Uh, sometimes intercut with actual clips for the movies and sometimes not. Um, I believe Bob Clark directed one such trailer. I'm not sure which one that was. Uh, well, I think he did. It was for the same company, Europix. Uh, he did the one, Orgy of the Dead, Triple Bill. Um, he, he may have had a hand in this one, but I know uh, he and Alan Ormsby worked on the Orgy of the Dead trailer. Okay. And uh, this is for the double feature of I Dismember Mama and the Blood Spattered Bride. Uh, I, Dismem I Dismember Mama is also known as Poor Albert and Little Annie, uh, starring an actor named Zooey Hall, I believe, as Poor Albert. Yeah, uh, Zooey Hall uh, was an interesting actor, uh, came up in the late 60s. Uh, the first thing I saw him in was The Learning Tree, uh, the Gordon Parks movie. But uh, he was in Fortune in Men's Eyes, very memorable in that, and also uh, the John Frankenheimer film, 99 and 44, 100% Dead. Uh, and I, I don't think he did too much after that. And um, little Annie, who is this uh, girl that he pursues through the film, was played by Jerry Reichel, and she replaced Eve Plum as Jan when the Brady Bunch Hour premiered in the mid-70s. Uh, Eve Plum was the only member of the original cast not to return, so Jerry Reichel came in and uh, stood in for her. This movie was directed by Paul Leder, uh, who made a number of exploitation films throughout the, I believe he started in the 60s? Mm-hmm and uh, had a career all the way through the 70s. Uh, Jack Harris's release of the 3D Ape, A-P-E, was another one of his. Uh, and he is the father of Mimi Leader, who has directed a lot of television and also features uh, like The Peacemaker and Deep Impact. Paul Leader himself remade uh, I Dismember Mama or Poor Albert and Little Annie in 1994 under the title Killing Obsession, in which uh, Poor Albert was played by John Savage, and Little Annie was played by Beverly Mitchell, uh, an actress who went on to star on TV's Seventh Heaven and has done a number of uh, feature films since. I actually got to interview Beverly Mitchell a little while back when she co-starred in Saw 2, and I actually uh, got to ask her a little bit about Killing Obsession, and she seemed very, very surprised that someone had even heard about this, even heard of this movie, much less was asking her about it. Uh, and the one thing that she said was that uh, doing that movie as a child, she was rather unnerved to work with John Savage, who apparently took his psychopathic role a little bit too seriously. 
The Blood Spattered Bride is a Spanish film directed by Vincente Aranda, who has a number of uh, diverse credits on his resume. Blood Spattered Bride itself is uh, one of the many European films that's a variation on Jay Sheridan Le Fanu's tale, Carmilla. Uh, I mentioned Europix a couple minutes ago, uh, the company that released this double bill. They actually released uh, I Dismember Mama originally under its title uh, Poor Albert and Little Annie in 1973. Uh, this double bill went out in 1974. Uh, and here we have the, uh, the Upchuck Cup is being uh, touted here. Is something that uh, the viewer will need to get through this double bill. Yeah, it's a variation on the uh, vomit bags, which were handed out for movies like Mark of the Devil, I believe, was one of the first major ones. Uh, it was rated V for violence, and you needed a vomit bag to get through it. <laughs> yeah, this was one of the uh, many promotional tools used out of the William Castle, uh, you know, gimmicks. Uh, Zombie, I believe, was one of the last ones that I can remember that would give out a vomit bag. In fact, in the trailer it says, we're giving out a, vom a, a, a barf bag similar to use to the ones in airline sickness bags. And that was in the trailer. Well, there was a one called uh, When the Screaming Stops. Also a Spanish film that I think had yeah, the airline. It's an, uh, yeah, it's an Amando de Osorio film. Yeah, that uh, had the vomit Also known bag as... I believe Grip of the Lorelei was its original title. Yes. And, yeah. and I'm proud to say, too, my, my, my person to the left of me here it almost was a, a proud owner of a demonoid diploma and a pineal gland, whatever, from, from beyond. <laughs> he, is the, he has all of them. So now we're coming to another double feature, uh, Women of Bloody Terror and Night of Bloody Horror. Uh, these were the first two films to be directed by Joy, a, Joy N. Houck Jr., uh, the son of Joy N. Houck Sr., uh, who is a veteran director of Lash LaRue Westerns and other movies. Uh, they released these films under the banner of Houko International. Uh, these were also the first two films for the actor Gerald McRaney, who went on to uh, be, have quite a TV career later on. He has the starring role in Night of Bloody Horror and a small part in Women of Bloody Horror, uh, though one of these films is not even a horror film, apparently. Yeah, uh, Women in Bloody Terror uh, was originally called His Wife's Habit, and uh, that one uh, was released by Halco in 1970, and uh, Night of Bloody Horror was the year before. Uh, that was first released in 69. Uh, what happened was, uh, I guess, after Night of Bloody Horror and, and uh, His Wife's Habit ran their course, uh, in 1972, Halco put them together on a double bill, and they decided to advertise His Wife's Habit more as a horror film. So they came up with that Women in Bloody Terror title. And uh, a pretty disturbing opening credit sequence that they shot for it, uh, you know, to try to make it look more like a horror film. But it's, it's really a uh, kind of a, an exploitation um, teen, kind of a, a almost becomes a, a teen film. Uh, it deals with this wife who's cheating on her husband. Uh, she goes out during the day and, and uh, has these uh, liaisons and uh, she, turns on a, a couple of guys at a parking garage, I think, and they, they, uh, they get irritated with her because she won't follow through. So they, they go to her house and uh, end up uh, raping her and her daughter. Um, so there's a subplot involving the daughter. Um, it's pr you know pretty, pretty good little film, but it's not a horror film. Uh, Night of Bloody Horror is a horror film, though, and uh, this one's good. Gerald McCraney is in both uh, years before he turned up in uh, television shows and movies. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, we were talking about uh, Dogs of the Week before. Uh, Siskel and Ebert would sometimes there point out movies that were advertised as one thing and turned out to be another. Uh, when they had uh, rituals on as a Dog of the Week under its title The Creeper, they pointed out that it was on a double bill with a movie called Nightmare County. 
and uh, but pointed out that it was not very violent at all. It was a uh, slow-paced drama about a voter registration campaign for migrant workers. <laughs> so they had uh, quite a bit of fun with that. Well, that had been originally titled November Children. Yeah, m- much yeah, less yeah. horrific title. Yeah. Um, How Come International's biggest hit was probably uh, the aforementioned Legend of Boggy Creek in 1972, uh, for which they split the release with uh, the creator, uh, Charles B. Pierce, and they both made a fortune off it. Uh, and then in 1976, the Hawks and Howco International embarked on their own Bigfoot movie, or Bigfoot-esque movie, uh, Creature from Black Lake, which had a very memorable performance by Jack Elam as a kind of backwoods yokel. Uh, Night of Bloody Horror was supposedly filmed in Violent Vision, and here we have uh, a little more Ballyhoo here, free $2,000 cash. If you... Uh, have a problem sitting through these movies or, or I think some, it says something if you, if you die lines. If you die from fright, uh, I guess your relatives <laughs> get the $2,000. So what's, what's the point of getting the $1,000? You're dead. I don't get it. <laughs> you know? All right, well, this will bring us on to uh, Dr. Butcher, M.D., which is a film that I actually produced a DVD for years ago. Uh, in fact, uh, the film was a, an Italian-made film by, and uh, under the title Zombie Holocaust. It was picked up by Terry Levine, and uh, he decided to rescore the film, and he wanted to spice up the opening because he said it wasn't. It needed a little bit more kick. So he knew uh, New York-based filmmaker Roy Frumkus, who made an unfinished zombie film called Tales That'll Tear Your Heart Out. Dummy great death, dummy death dummy with death, a really dummy arm. Death. Great dummy death. He decided to take this footage of Roy Frumkus playing a zombie and spice it into the movie. It came, this film became a pretty good-sized hit. It was promoted in a very wonderful fashion by Terry Levine. He hired people on a flatbed truck on something called the Butcher Mobile. A lot of people who would go into the industry, uh, one of them was Rick Sullivan. Gary Hertz. Gary Hertz. And Michael Weldon. Michael Weldon. Video. Yeah, they would dress up in this garb and start screaming out, and uh, it got people to go in there and see the movie. It's a pretty memorable thing. The trailer here is narrated by the great Adolf Caesar. In fact, that's his voice there. He's a depraved, homicidal rapist, and he makes house calls. Great film all the way. A little background on the uh, original Italian film. It was originally uh, sold as Queen of the Cannibals. That was its original title. Uh, directed by Frank Martin, a.k.a. Marino Girolamo. And it stars uh, Ian McCulloch, uh, who basically reprises a number of his scenes from Lucio Fulci's Zombie in this film. And even in this trailer, you see him uh, throwing Molotov cocktails at the advancing Walking Dead, uh, pretty much uh, echoing what he had done in Lucio Fulci's Zombie. Uh, he was also in uh, Luigi Cozzi's Contamination, uh, and I had the pleasure of working with him when I did a, a faux trailer called Girl Killer. I managed to get some footage of him at a convention and uh, splice it into that uh, for a DVD called Shock Festival, which you can get. Uh, great DVD, if I may say so. Um, Don't forget to thank Scooter McRae. Thanks, yes, thanks to Scooter McRae for his help on that. <laughs> Um, yeah, so here we go. I mean, basically, we have The Walking Dead advancing, the place burning down. It's, it's an echo of the end of Zombie, only admittedly not quite as well done. Um, you can kind of see how uh, this movie needed a little bit of spicing up, though the tales that'll tear your heart out footage at the beginning is, is pretty incongruous when seen in the context of what follows. It really has nothing to do with anything else that's in the main part of the film. MD, medical deviant. He's a depraved, sadistic rapist, a bloodthirsty, homicidal killer. And this actually has a scene that was in the original, you know, that was shot around the same time as Zombie Holocaust, but it's not in Zombie Holocaust, but it's in this film, which is unusual. This 
all, rated, uh, you know, for all audiences. This is complete bullshit. I guarantee you it was stolen off another print. Uh, gotta leave it to Terry Levine. What a master showman. All right, well, next brings us up here to The Grim Reaper, a.k.a. Anthropophagus, which was released by FBI. It was a film directed by Joe D'Amato. Pretty disgusting film. In fact, when it was released here, it was cut. There's a scene where Luigi Montefiore, George Eastman, there he is, eats the fetus of, an, uh, uh, of a baby. And, of course, I don't think that would make it out in the U.S., so it was cut. And another thing, uh, it was rescored. The movie was rescored, and usually when they rescore it, they try to improve the music. However, in this one, they take old stock music from like the Twilight Zone, and uh, it just really doesn't match, and it hurts the film quite a bit. In fact, it was also used in Kingdom of the Spiders. This was um, one of Joe D'Amato's low. In fact, he said it's the lowest budget horror film that he ever made. Uh, however, it's also one of the most successful, and it was the first film produced by his Film Mirage Company, whose many other credits include uh, the aforementioned Michele Soavi's Stage Fright. The film stars Tisa Farrow, who had previously been uh, alongside Ian McCulloch and Lucio Fulci's Zombie. Uh, unfortunately, she never really went on to do much after those two films. Uh, last report, I had heard she was driving a cab in New York City, though I was never able to actually confirm that. Uh, George Eastman, a.k.a. Luigi Montefiore, also co-scripted the film with D'Amato, and they went on to follow up with a film called Rosso Sangue, which was also sold as The Grim Reaper 2 in certain territories, and was released in the U.S. in a big box wizard video release under the title The Monster Hunter, with some really great art on it. Uh, the aforementioned uh, fetus that uh, the Grim Reaper, or the Anthropophagus, as he's never referred to as the Grim Reaper on screen, of course, uh, that he devours was actually a skinned rabbit uh, covered with fake blood, which was probably not much more appetizing for Montefiore for that scene. Yeah, and uh, don't fear the Reaper, my man. But uh, yeah, Joe D'Amato preferred making horror films, but he made a lot more money making adult porno. But he, he did make a, a, quite a big mark in the horror community. In fact, he gave Michele Squave his big break with his first film, Stage Fright. It's funny, uh, Film Ventures International uh, released The Grim Reaper in 1981, but they re-released it in 82 as The Zombies Rage with the tagline, they rip out your fear and feed on it. Now, how did they do that physically? I'd love to see. Please, it's like me. seeing How? a man turned inside out. You never actually see that on. I want to see someone's fear of physically ripped out and eaten. Well, what was the Grim Reaper tag like? Uh, the, the Grim Reaper was it's not fear that tears you apart, it's him. <laughs> Moving right along to um, Dr. Tar's Torture Dungeon. Uh, a lot of films from this period kind of attached famous horror names to them, uh, i.e., you know, Edgar Allan Poe's Dr. Tar's Torture Dungeon here. Except this is, in fact, a direct adaptation of a Poe story, The System of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather. This movie was directed by Juan Lopez Moctezuma, who had been a producer on Alejandro Jodorowsky films like El Topo and Fondo and Lise, and you can definitely see the Jodorowsky influence. This is a really dreamlike, surreal, uh, very interesting little film. Uh, it's kind of undersung, I think, uh, partially because it was originally released severely cut in the U.S., although uh, Mondo Macabro released it on DVD uncut under its original title, The Mansion of Madness. The star of the film is uh, Claudio Brook, who appeared in a number of other Moctezuma films. Uh, Moctezuma had a background in both radio and theater, and you can kind of see that in some of the set pieces here. They have a very kind of theatrical flair. Uh, I don't want to say stagey, but it definitely has uh, that, that kind of feeling to it when you watch it. A uh, very uh, visually distinguished film. Um, it was kind of treated as an exploitation title, until it was eventually released on DVD, but it's, a, it's better than that. It's got a lot of kind of cool, surreal stuff going on. And it was a Group 1 release. 
Uh, yeah, I believe so, yeah. originally, yeah. So this is our third Group 1 trailer. And uh, actually, I, I forgot to mention during Dr. Butcher that that was Alexandra Della Colle from that we saw in the te Teasers Go to Paris trailer. Oh, okay. That was the blonde in Dr. Butcher. And I believe this has had at least one or two other titles. I, I couldn't track down what they were, but I'm almost positive that uh, Dr. Tar's Torture Dungeon had had a couple of other titles. This kind of came after the whole cycle of uh, Edgar Allan Poe films, of course, that uh, Roger Corman had done. Uh, and also The Conqueror Worm, which, uh, as I mentioned, AIP tried to sell as a Poe film, even though it had absolutely nothing to do with Poe. But they just put that on there for commercial purposes. This is the, um, the diehard uh, story of the inmates taking over the asylum, and it's got quite a colorful cast of characters, as you can see here. What did, do you remember what this played with? I wonder what Group 1 ran this with. Uh, this was a little before my time. Mm -hmm. This, I believe it was released uh, in the mid-70s. I think it was made in 74 originally, and it might have been around 76 when this came out in U.S. theaters mm -hmm. uh, before my time. This is the Edgar Allan Poe film that is so shocking that it will never appear on television. See it if you dare. First it was color. Here comes one that I really wish I had seen on a big screen, though I actually did. Uh, once again, thanks to the magic of Exhumed Films, they showed this at one of their 24-hour shows. Uh, this is a movie called Wicked Wicked. Uh, I think this is kind of an unsung cult classic in the making, shot in anamorphic duo vision, which basically means that the entire film presents the story through split screens with parallel action happening on both sides of the screen. Uh, it's kind of ironic. Uh, the film was written and directed by Richard L. Baer, who had a long career in television, which has the square screen. This one was in anamorphic wide to fit both sides of the action, uh, though you don't quite get that feeling from the trailer, which, you know, we're seeing everything here with just one, uh, one side of the screen at a time. When he got the idea to do this film, uh, Wicked Wicked, Richard L. Baer uh, took out an unproduced script he had written called The Squirrel and readapted it to this format. Uh, he wound up needing to find a special typewriter because he uh, typed up the script on legal-sized paper put in lengthwise so he could uh, type the parallel action on both sides of the page. Uh, and then once the shooting was completed, it took him 32 weeks to finish a rough cut because he had two films worth of footage to not only assemble, but to kind of juxtapose with each other. The film was sold and is perceived by some people as a straight horror film, and certainly looks like it here, with uh, a masked maniac terrorizing guests at this, ho this uh, seaside hotel. But the film is really kind of uh, a horror comedy in a sense. Uh, even Bear has called it high camp. There are a lot of juxtapositions of images on the left and the right side that are very clearly intended to provoke comedy and uh, not horror. The heroine that we see here is Tiffany Bowling, who we were discussing before, who also has a song number in the film. Uh, she had released an album in 1970, which didn't do very well, so she decided to turn to acting, but when it came time to cast this role, one of the reasons that uh, she got the part was that she was so good at singing as well. Um, this film was shot at the Hotel del Coronado, which is located on San Diego Bay, and film buffs will recognize it from having appeared in any number of other films, from Some Like It Hot to The Stuntman. There are also rooms in the hotel that are supposedly haunted, and accounts of those hauntings were the inspiration for the Stephen King short story and movie 1408. Uh, after this film uh, came out, or before the film came out, uh, Richard L. Baer and his executive producer, William R., wanted to follow it up with another duo vision film called October Incident about a plot to kill Fidel Castro. 
but uh, MGM was not successful in marketing this film, and they didn't really give it much of a release, and it didn't really uh, do any business at the box office. I think, personally, it is ripe for rediscovery. I would love to see this come out in a really nice anamorphic duo-vision widescreen transfer, so uh, if anyone from MGM is listening, please dig this one out of the vaults, give it its due on a disc, because uh, you'll sell at least one copy that I can speak for. Two. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I like too. the movie a lot also. You'll be happy to know it has been running on cable uh, letterboxed. Not the same thing. We need a disc. <laughs> <laughs> so get on it, MGM. Well, they have that limited edition line. That's Maybe true. Can do that. Well, we'll, we'll see, hopefully. Mm-hmm. This is Flesh and Blood Show. And you can tell it's British from the way they spell theater. <laughs> this was uh, a, an, an attempt, well, it was a British film uh, done by Pete Walker. And the, uh, the idea was that uh, it would be partially 3D. Uh, only 14 minutes of the last reel uh, is in 3D. Uh, it's a 3D dual 35 millimeter process uh, presented in anaglyphic duo color and widescreen. Uh, I believe cropped to 1.75. I got that from a 3D movies book. Uh, yeah, Pete Walker loved his sex crazed killers. This was was this the first one that he did on this subject? Because he did um, a series of uh, he had done a 3D movie. Uh, Three Dimensions of Greta, which we're going to yeah, get to. Yeah, we're going to get to that one next, yeah. I, um, and then uh, this was one of the earlier ones, but he did a number of uh, sex-crazed killer films throughout the 70s. Yeah, The Confessional and House of Whipcord and uh, later on The Comeback. Yeah, Schizo. Yeah. Right, Schizo. I forgot about that one. Yeah, this was, uh, this was released by David Friedman uh, in the U.S. Uh, through his Entertainment Ventures company. Uh, he had mostly done softcore up to that point and he was trying to branch out and do more mainstream films uh so this was uh this was like a first step toward the main the more mainstream films uh, he did a film called the wrestler and uh one called johnny firecloud and then pretty much went back to softcore and, and then eventually hardcore uh, I, the first time i saw this I've, I've never seen this in 3d i saw it on uh usa network and it must have been cut to pieces. Oh, it yeah. must have been yeah. about 45 minutes long. This is a pretty racy and, and graphic film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've uh, never seen it in 3D either. Yeah, It's just the, uh, just the flashback sequences, which are shown uh, in, at the end. Yeah, Walker uh, raised a lot of hackles in Britain in the 70s with these films. Uh, they are not very highly looked upon at all, of course, um, but they were very successful, and they pretty much that was pretty much his specialty throughout the uh, the 70s, and then in the 80s he tried to go upscale with a movie called House of the Long Shadows, which got together uh, four of the all-time great horror stars uh, to no avail, unfortunately, because the movie didn't turn out all that well, and it also was not all that successful, unfortunately. Mm. Well, I, I think this was a real uh, attempt to combine. He he had done sex exploitation films. And, and then he got into the horror film. So this was uh, a combination of the two. Yeah, it's kind of a transition. It's almost mm-hmm. kind of like a roughy because there's all this kind of nasty, kind of sexually charged violence going on. Mm-hmm. You know, hence the title, Flesh and Blood Show. Yep. A lot of both. And I don't think this got much play after its initial release in the States. Yeah, I don't think it was ever re... Most of his films wound up with at least two titles. Mm-hmm. I don't think that... I don't believe that one ever did. I could be wrong.
And now we get into uh, the three dimensions of Greta. Right. Uh, this was shot before the uh, Flesh and Blood show. This was made in 1972. Uh, it was released in the States in 73, uh, sometimes on a double bill with Moonlighting Mistress. Uh, it was released by General Film Corporation, which we talked about earlier, because they had released Bonnie's Kids and Centerfold Girls and Zebra Killer and, and Candy Snatchers. Uh, was, this was originally called The Four Dimensions of Greta, but when, by the time it got to the States, it had been uh, reduced to three dimensions. But what is the fourth dimension? <laughs> what is Greta's fourth dimension? <laughs> Donald Westlake wrote a book once, uh, the, fourth dimension, the Fourth Dimension is Death. Oh, so there you but go. there's no death in this. No. The death is in the subsequent films. Actually, I think there is death in this, as I recall. I think uh, I think Greta kills herself, or she's... Hmm, I don't know. It's been a while since I saw it, but I, I, it's told in, through flashback. Uh, somebody is, is searching for Greta, and uh, I, I think... I think something bad happened to her. I don't remember. But Tristan Rogers, um, who some of you might remember as Roger Scorpio from the General Hospital soap opera, uh, is a journalist uh, from Berlin who is in London uh, looking for this uh, missing au pair, uh, Greta Gruber. Uh, her father is this uh, wealthy businessman who's hired him to, to locate her. Uh, all the flashbacks are in 3D. There's, uh, there's Robin Asquith. Uh, that's probably the best scene the scene with the broken bottle there. A new pulsating sensation. Singer by the name of Huckleberry Finn, that's <laughs> spelled F-Y-N-N, -N, uh, did the theme song Greta. Yeah, 3D uh, sex films got to be popular after the release of The Stewardesses. That was kind of the... Was, mm -hmm. was that the first major hit 3D sex film? Yeah, yeah, that was in 1969. I mean, there had been, uh, I think, a few nudies before that, like uh, Playgirls and the Bellhop and... Um, I think that was 3D. But then you had things like Love in 3D. Right. Polly wants to crack her. Well, I think that's the <laughs> best <laughs> one. No, I think I, I, I think uh, Pete Walker's best films are, would be Frightmare. And, oh, yeah. uh, I mean, you know, he, the sex stuff was fun, okay, but Frightmare, I think, is his best film. That's a really generally disturbing film. Great are you? Are you angel or devil? How I wish I knew. Wake up, world. The Lollipop Girls are here to sweeten your life with carnal confection. See them come right off this screen in three dimensions. You'll be there in the picture when Super Johnny Wad, John C. Holmes meets Playgirl, Cynthia Starr. This is a connection you can't miss. See the Lollipop Girls in Hard Candy. Here's Hard Candy, uh, also known as Lollipop Girls in Hard Candy. Uh, again, released with a self-applied X rating. There, there, I think there were different versions of this, uh, some harder than others. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so it was directed by Norm DePlume, hmm. who is actually Stephen Gibson. Uh, and the interesting thing about Stephen Gibson is that he owned all of his films. I know Mike just mentioned the stewardesses. Uh, that went out through a, a distributor, and um, the, the maker of those of, uh, was Chris Condon, I think, did the stewardesses and a couple of other movies. Chris Condon never made the same money that Stephen Gibson did because he went through distributors. Stephen Gibson owned all of his films, 
and handled the distribution of them. Also, uh, Stephen Gibson's 3D, and I'm not going to attempt to explain it the way I did with Flesh and Blood Show, <laughs> but uh, Stephen Gibson's technique for 3D uh, enabled him to show these in drive-ins, and I think he was the only one uh, who made 3D movies that were 3D at drive-ins. Wow. No matter where you parked, you got the 3D effect. We just saw John Seaman there uh, pretending to be the director of the movie. Uh, I believe he, he's from New Rochelle. Really? He went to New Rochelle High School. Mm -hmm. Local boy. Uh, we also saw, William, oh, there he is. That's, uh, that's William Margold we just saw there. Not with a gun. <laughs> Not with a lollipop. No. There he is with the bow tie. Yeah, I actually uh, saw this movie in the theater uh, a few <laughs> years ago during a midnight screen. It was pretty hard to get through. In fact, the John Holmes scene, it doesn't even look like it was really shot in 3D. I think it was like a post Yeah, oh yeah, thing. it was like a loop, I think, that they just stuck in there. But yeah, even though yeah. He's, he's there in the trailer promoting it, so go figure. Yeah, well, and he looks older also in the trailer yeah. than he looks in the, in the film. Um, what, what's, uh, what's funny is I, I saw this in a theater uh, when it was re-released as M3D in, in the late oh, 80s. Oh, I remember that. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. That, that, that was a big deal at the time. Yeah. That was back when... Um, a number of 3D films were getting reissued by... Was 21st Century the company behind that one? No, no, it was Stephen Gibson. He... Because he, uh, he I remember Revenge of the Shogun Women in 3D came out right around the same time. Well, when I saw M3D, it was 1989. Oh, uh, wow, that's yeah. way, going way back. Um, he, uh, he will re-release the movies every couple of years because his, his, uh, his feeling is that college students, you know, they, they go to college for four years, they get out, and then there's a whole new group of college students who will go see these movies so yeah. he, he's kept them in circulation and they're still playing they, they you know he just puts them out every couple of years yeah i just remember you know m3d i guess was of course trying to sound like mtv which was just right. becoming big at the time so here's panorama blue uh yet another uh film that went out with the uh self-rated self-imposed x rating uh this was filmed in 70 millimeter that was uh, the gimmick behind this one uh, 70 millimeter super widescreen panorama scope with four track stereo sound. Hmm. And I, I haven't seen it looking like this. Uh, the version I have is really badly cropped. Uh, so I, I wouldn't mind seeing the, the full you know, widescreen version at some point. Uh, it was directed by Alan Roberts who later made Young Lady Chatterley and uh, Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood. John Holmes is in this one as well. Uh, along with such uh, familiar faces to uh, softcore and hardcore fans as Renee Bond, Rick Cassidy, Ushi Degard, Sandra Dempsey, Rick Lutz, Linda York, and uh, the guy I couldn't remember in the last trailer, William Margold, <laughs> is in this one as well. It was released by Elman Film Enterprises, a company that was uh, around quite a bit in the 70s. They put out Alabama's Ghost oh, and Bigfoot, and uh, I couple of uh, kung fu movies like Fearless Fighters was theirs. Looks like this is bidding to be the This is Cinerama of 3D adult. Yes. Yep. And uh, here's the Italian Stallion. Oh, good. And uh, introducing it is uh, Ms. Gail Palmer, director of the X-rated films Hot Summer in the City, etc., etc. A couple of films with, uh, with Carol Connors. What is the longest foot? <laughs> you know <laughs> what know. they say about the guy with the longest foot? Now, this was shot in 1970, this original film. Uh, it, it was originally called Party at Kitty's, uh, also known as Party at Kitty's Place. 
and Party at Kitty and Studs, I believe, was right. another one. That was another title, yeah. It was done in 1970, and uh, Sly Stallone was uh, paid $200 to be in it. Um, and it, uh, it did play under those titles that we mentioned uh, beginning in 1971. Uh, but, of course, after his big success with Rocky, uh, Gail Palmer got her hands on it, retitled it The Italian Stallion, and uh, released it in 1978. Uh, it's not a hardcore film, and it never was. Uh, but what's interesting is that it was rented to theaters uh, in, in the late 70s uh, for $10,000 a night. Wow. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, Stallone was so popular. And he'd also done, uh, I guess he, he may have known that this was going to come back to haunt him. So in interviews, which we will see here, he's quoted uh, from his Playboy interview, uh, he, he admitted to making uh, softcore porn uh, in, in at least the one interview that's quoted here in Playboy. Uh, and another time he said, uh, I was starving and lived for five days in Port Authority bus terminal. I didn't eat for most of that time. I was cold, sick, broke, on the brink of committing a criminal act when I got this offer to do a movie. They wanted to know if I'd take my clothes off. I said, why not? I take them off for free every night. I didn't think the movie would ever get released. Now I hear they're marketing the piece of scum in Hollywood. It makes me sick. And... Uh, and uh, little damage control yeah there. well it, right here we're going to see a, a quote from playboy and uh, it's being read by uh, john alderman uh, an actor who made a, a number of softcore movies like the animal and uh, the dirty dolls and uh, he turns up in, in a lot of lee frost movies also shows up usually in disguise in uh, some of gary graver's hardcore films like wearing wigs and fake mustaches <laughs> and everything and and uh going under pseudonym so he won't be noticed by Screen Actors Guild. Because uh, he did do mainstream films. He's in Cleopatra Jones and you know some of Jack Starrett's films as John Alderman. Well, he made the transition successfully, which not everybody has been able to do mm -hmm. who's tried it. Yeah, and this film was re-edited into an action film overseas in some places, and it was under the title Baki, <laughs> <laughs> which I think was pretty amusing. Uh, there was a rumor, too, I don't know if it's true, but Sylvester Stallone used to work in my old neighborhood at the at the Baronet Cornet movie theater over on 59th hmm. Street, and he was a ticket taker, and he got fired for selling ripped tickets. There comes a time in every girl's life. And here's Christina Lindbergh again. Can't get enough Christina Lindbergh. Yes, we've seen her twice already. Uh, and they call her One Eye and also The Depraved. But how much more can you see of her? <laughs> I've seen uh, everything. Well, this is a little gentler than those two films. Yeah, this is uh, Made in Sweden, which was uh, made in 1971. Canon released it. I think it's actually it was it must have been made earlier. It was released in the States in 71 by Canon. Uh, again, with that uh, with that self-imposed X rating, got rated R in 1974. A lot of times, you know, they would put put these movies out late 60s, early 70s when the X rating was still, you know, there there wasn't a stigma attached to it. So they would, you know, stick an X rating on it because you you could do that. You didn't have to submit it to the MPAA to get an X. So they would just stick an X on it, and then like later on down the road when they wanted to to branch out and put it in drive-ins or neighborhood theaters like as a second feature uh, the distributors would submit these things later to get an R rating so you know maybe in 1978 this would have turned up as a second or third feature to a canon film like 
cheerleaders beach party or hot t-shirts or one of those things you know since they now have the r rating they could stick made in sweden on there or if they wanted to change the title they could do that and you know it would still have the r rating and i'm sure this one probably turned up on skinamax a lot back in the day mm -hmm. yeah. if it didn't it's exactly the kind of film that usually did imported softcore yeah something with an r rating so they could get away with showing it but stuff like this used to be on that uh station all the time sure yeah cinemax after hours. No, it was cinemax late night and showtime after hours yeah. those were the two uh cable programs where they, they would run a lot of these things uh european films from the 70s um i mentioned earlier with the minx that there was a novelization for that film and there is a novelization for made in sweden also and uh, eventually we will get to that on our blog, the Paperback Film Projector. Plug, plug. <laughs> Check it out. And uh, the book is coming soon. So is she. Yes, and if I may, I'll plug something too again. Uh, if you like this, my, my, like me, I don't know if you do, but check out uh, youtube.com forward slash cinephile, C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. I do a film review show on YouTube. It's pretty successful. I'd love to hear your comments. And also... I'd like to know if any of you people out there actually listen to these commentaries and what you have to say about them. You know, share your thoughts. You know, we, we hope you like them and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, back on to more sleaze and porno. This is Pornography in Denmark. Uh, not the only movie out there with this title. <laughs> but the only one that I think you can see the camera crew reflected in the car window. <laughs> Actually, this is not pornography in Denmark. This is pornography, pornography in, in, Dan pornography. in Denmark. Uh, well, I love these export trailers. You know, I think I mentioned earlier, uh, pornography was uh, legalized and well, was decriminalized in 1967 and, and completely legalized in 1969. And at that point, uh, it became kind of a, an open, you know, just you know, anything goes for quite a few years. And it became, here in the U.S., it became synonymous with sex. So if something was Danish, you know, you knew it was going to be pretty hot. And so you had, you know, pornography in Denmark, uh, pornography, Copenhagen 1970. You got wide open Copenhagen, which are probably all the same movie. But anyway, uh, sexual freedom in Denmark, censorship in Denmark. I mean, there were, there were a number of these things. Uh, Danish Blue was one of them. Uh, on and on. Uh, how to get your rocks off in Denmark? <laughs> well, you, you had you know other other films that didn't specifically have Denmark in the title, but were you know were shot in Denmark, and it, it just became a you know for a few years it was a real uh, hot button, so to speak. Hey guys, let's go to Denmark get some porno. What do you think? Well, there was one uh, Alex Dorenzi uh, who later shot hardcore films in the United States um, uh, actually went to Denmark and shot a movie that was called Pornography in Denmark that got a, a big release in the States and uh, but it's not this film it's another one with the same title uh, and Dorenzi you know later went on to make things like Babyface and Pretty Peaches and uh, discovered a lot of uh, the big hardcore stars uh, we saw a Danish title at the head of this. I'm wondering if this one ever actually did get released in America. Oof. Was it Paul Williams? Ah. <laughs> Scary. I mean, is, is, did this one necessarily get a release in the U.S.? Or? I, I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's a U.S. 
tra trailer, right? Yeah, it, it's, it very much looks like an export trailer. I'm wondering yeah. if anyone actually bit, because mm. clearly there was another movie that did come out here with the same title, so... Right. So I must have known, maybe it was one of the other ones I mentioned. Now we're approaching the Mondo section of the film. Uh, the, we are the in the Mondo section Yeah, we are in it, and unfortunately Mike Ingle is not a very big fan of these, so... That's uh, not true, necessarily. Oh, really? I... I not, I'm just not as well versed on these as some people, so I'm gonna uh, cede this to the others for the moment. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the Mondo films either, but you know, I could talk about a couple of them. This one, uh, this is one of the reasons why the, the whole animal abuse thing. No, sorry, not entertainment. This one, um, incredibly, was picked up by Columbia Pictures. Columbia worldwide, Pictures, yeah, worldwide rights. Well, Columbia. Wasn't oh. <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah, Columbia, yeah, there's a lot of hard-to-watch images in this trailer. Uh, Columbia was very much involved with the, uh, international film distribution in the 70s. I know they picked up a lot of Italian films. They released some of the Terrence Hill Bud Spencer movies. Uh, they also, uh, the British um, Confessions films with Robin Asquith, they released... Uh, also, they handled a lot of the distribution in the Spanish language theaters in the U.S. So this is not a big surprise that they would pick up something like this. I mean, something like this would play all over the world. Well, it goes back to what we were saying before. This was a vehicle where, you, you know, if you had images like this in a mainstream film or a narrative film, it would be condemned. But mm -hmm. this is a documentary showing it as it really is. And so that justifies just showing, you know, all kinds of really mm -hmm. unsavory and hard to watch stuff. Yeah, this was mostly shot in 16 millimeter and then blown up. Um, the ad said, uh, claimed, see the erotic dance of fertility, see the blood sacrifice of slaughter, see the tribal rights of manhood, uncivilized, unsurpassed, never before has the screen shown such astounding and astonishing primitive ceremonies. See the boobs So the tribes, the tribes win. That's how another way you get away with nudity. <laughs> people would used to jack off the National Geographic magazines with these women in it. It's true. Speak for yourself. <laughs> I didn't do it. Hell, I, you know. Yeah. Some of the some of the wonderful things you get to see in this movie, you know, we haven't seen yet. Uh, natives eating larvae and and a hippopotamus being dismembered. That's not. You know, I think the, the the film that really allowed this to become a major studio release would probably be Mondo Kane because oh mean, yeah, that sure. Mondo Kane was the was the gateway film for this. Yeah. In the way that I believe Five Fingers of Death was the opening mm -hmm. for the uh, the Kung Fu craze. Well, I think the guys who made this, and there always seemed to be Italians behind it, because you know they they were the ones that had done Mondo Cane, mm -hmm. uh, Angelo Castiglione, and uh, the uh, the producer whose name escapes me at the moment, but they they both did uh, Macabro, which had been released by AIP, and then they did uh, I guess with leftover footage from this, they made one called Africa Uncensored, which went out through AIP. Their um, Actually, Macabro and Africa Uncensored went through the Trans-American Films subsidiary, which uh, I asked Sam Arkoff about that once, and he said, uh, I reserved the Trans-American Films uh, label for movies that I didn't think we wanted our name on. <laughs> So, it was the Rosebud yeah. releasing of its time. Yes. So they right. were kind of too embarrassed to release some films at AIP, I guess. <laughs> right, yeah. Or yeah. international classics. Right. <laughs> and here we have another foreign trailer, it looks like. Yeah, this is uh, Shocking Asia, and this is uh, a, another foreign trailer. More like Shocking Denmark. A.K.A. Lose Your Lunch Film. <laughs> right. This, this, is, was, this is revolting. This is a West German Hong Kong co-production uh, directed by one Emerson Fox, who's actually Rolf Olsen, uh, a West German director who did uh, a couple of, usually uh, 
usually sexy sort of films. Like he did one that became uh, Nurses for Sale, the, the Sam, uh, Sam Sherman movie. Um, he also made one uh, right after this. He made a, a Journey into the Beyond, I think was his. Oh. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, it's been a while since I've seen this. This this is uh, there is a nasty sex change in here. If I'm not mistaken, is that yeah, yeah. Right? Th- th- there you this go. Is, this oh, is God. leading oh. into it. Yeah, these, yeah, these yeah. Are the, uh, yeah. Now yeah. popularized popularized by uh, Chaz Bono. Oh, oh go. God, oh. damn it, man! Oh. What the deuce? This was uh, this was made in 1976, but it, it didn't really get much play or any play in the United States until 1984 when it uh, got picked up by Bedford Entertainment. Well, I seem yeah. to recall, I used to, um, I used to get to read Variety at my high school library. And I'd go through the film festival issues. I believe this one was advertised at the market issues for a couple of years before it actually got picked up for the U.S. Because, mm-hmm. you know, as a high school person, I would look at this stuff and be very, very intrigued about, you know, what lay behind this title. I finally saw some excerpts from it and decided I really didn't want to see any more because this is really revolting stuff. There's there's your Nazi dancer. I guess that's kind of shocking. Yeah, it. uh, I think I think Variety reviewed it even when it was made and when it was first shown. uh, May have even been in in Asia. Uh, Yeah, here are dead bodies in the Ganges. Uh, It uh, it played. You know, of course, it didn't get much beyond Forty Second Street when it did get released in the states. But I know uh, Bill Landis uh, talked about it in Sleazoid Express about like people running out the doors during the sex change operation. They would like go out to the side door screaming and holding <laughs> their crotches because it is it is pretty intense. And you know, at the time there was a bit of a mondo revival, especially in uh, you know the urban grindhouses. You had well, I think that had a lot to mm-hmm. do with Faces of Death suddenly coming up, and that just yeah. sparked the whole interest in, uh, or when they came out on video, and it sparked mm-hmm. an interest in seeing these things on the big screen. Well, Terry Levine, who we mentioned, uh, was the guy behind Doctor Butcher, M.D. Uh, he got uh, Faces of Death, then Savage Man, Savage Beast, and released those, and those were really popular in, in the uh, urban. Grindhouses. So then, Shocking Asia and some of the older ones got re-released under new titles. And uh, there was one called Sweet and Savage. Uh, Brutes and Savages came out around that time. So, and we got Midget Wrestling. Yes. Hey, it's the oh. critical, the politically correct term is Little Person Wrestling. Okay, Little Person Wrestling. Yes. It's funny when uh, when there there was one called Mondo Magic that had been released in the '70s and that got re-released around this time uh, under the title Shocking Cannibals. A Magnum Video paired Shocking Asia and Mondo Magic together on VHS as the Shock Box. You would buy the Shock Box and get both of those on, on video. Should you choose to accept Right. It. Here's one from, uh, from the 60s, the height of the Mondo craze, the post-Mondo Kane uh, releases. Uh, this is Taboos of the World with comments by Vincent Price. Uh, since this was an AIP, American International release, uh, Price had been doing all the Edgar Allan Poe films and, and doing little cameos and, and beach party films and everything. And this was probably a contractual obligation. Uh, so he, he narrates the film, but it was advertised on the posters as with comments by Vincent Price. Apparently there's a version of this without Vincent Price's narration and the title of that is Taboos Around the World. Uh, AIP released it in 1965, and uh, it was advertised as the film that starts where the other Mondo pictures chickened out. (laughs) Uh, In this one, you get to see people drinking reindeer blood, 
You get to see the deformed offspring of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki atomic bomb victims. Uh, uh, Drug-addicted parents selling their own, own children into prostitution. Oh. Yeah, and, and other uh, wonderful things. Kissing uh, horses. Ki- <laughs> Driving real fast <laughs> in the snow. I, I grew up in Syracuse. That's like every day. <laughs> I've done that. I didn't know that was taboo. I think that's pretty oh, taboo well, these days. Go, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is taboo. This is, yeah. Have you heard of streaking? <laughs> the polar bears on the Pony Island? Come on. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I'm sorry. A little bit of these films go a long way, right, Chris? Well, you know, I've, I've never seen this one, but uh, oh, I think we're going to see a snake skin. Oh, yeah, geez. You know, can't, can't abide that stuff. Sorry. Uh, this film, of course, was not sanctioned by PETA, was it? No. At least they ate the snake, so, you know. Well, they ate it on a PETA bread. So was Peter saying? Boy, you can tell. We're how many hours into this now? Getting getting into the third hour, I guess. Hey guys, if you don't like the commentary, it's it's, it's an added bonus. So don't complain to us. We're doing our best here, but you know these films are pretty hard to sit through. Oh, come on, man! Six, six, six. That's for sure. If you think this is that's Robert Mitchum at the end of the Yakuza. Oh. God damn it, You've man. You've never seen that before? Uh, I'd rather, I'll stick to the Kenji Fukasaku uh, Jenge <laughs> films. Much better film. Taboos In color. In color, yeah, that's a taboo. Thank Chop God we're off. out of that section, yeah. and now we're into, what the heck is this? I don't think this ever played 42nd Street. Chappaqua, anyway. about where the Clintons live. <laughs> right. we're, we're in Upper Westchester now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we've, we've moved slightly. Conrad Brooks? He, oh, <laughs> Conrad Brooks. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ravi Shankar? That's pretty, yeah, that should be taboos of the yeah, world. Well, he I'd did be the nervous music. for a minute. But you know what? You know, we mentioned a couple of minutes ago about uh, shadow companies like Transamerican and mm-hmm. Rosebud releasing. This was actually released by Universal uh, through their regional film subsidiary. Regional uh, films. Re- eh? It was regional films, yeah, which they had for the uh, the arty and more offbeat films. Uh, this one was written, produced, directed, and it stars Conrad Rooks. Not Conrad Brooks. No, no, not not the guy you know we know from. A million chiller conventions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, this uh, this is semi autobiographical. Uh, Conrad Rooks, who later made the Siddhartha film uh, in the early seventies, um, was uh, the the son of a, uh, a wealthy uh, American businessman, and he got hooked on drugs and alcohol. And so this is about his years in France, uh, hanging out with uh, a lot of the beats. Um, and in fact, uh, we saw William Burroughs there a second ago. William Burroughs is in this playing his pal Opium Jones. And uh, Allen Ginsberg wow. shows up. And, and it, what, what happens is Rooks checks himself into a, a Swiss sanitarium to go cold turkey. And the majority of this movie is uh, just kind of flashbacks that he experiences um, in different formats, you know, black and white and in color, uh, I guess some 16, some Super 8. I, I don't know. I've, I've never seen it. But uh, and then we have Ravi Shankar here, who was popular at the time because I, I think he taught George Harrison how to play sitar. Yeah, that was yeah. his big claim to fame. Yeah. And the, con- and the concert for Bangladesh. Which was later. This was 67. Oh, okay. uh, the concert for Bangladesh, I think, was 71. Uh, but yeah, we just saw Alan Ginsberg there. A founder of Nambla. And we... But what does this have to do with Chappaqua? 
you know, I don't know. Maybe he, maybe his <laughs> maybe his family was from Chappaqua. I don't know. <laughs> maybe that's why the Clintons um, over there. <laughs> well, it won a Silver Lion Award at the Venice Film Festival. Yeah. So it was filmed in France, Mexico, and India. Um, and now and here's Salo. Das letzte Werk des bewunderten und umstrittenen Regisseurs Pier Paolo Pasolini. We really have not much to add about this. If you like children eating their own feces, <laughs> this movie's for you. This, uh... And I'm sorry, people. I just I don't like this film. Nichts ist so ansteckend wie das Böse. Eine Anklage gegen die Perversion der Macht. Sadismus und Ausschweifungen als Symbole einer hemmungslosen Zeit. Menschen im Teufelskreis ihrer Gelüste. Die Vergewaltigung des menschlichen Körpers. Ein schockierender Film. Die 120 Tage von Sodom. Der Regisseur von De Camerone und anderer Welterfolge gibt einen beispiellosen Bericht über die Grausamkeiten dieser Welt. Pasolini hat wieder ein heißes Eisen angefasst. Ein Film als Protest gegen die Perversitäten dieser Welt. Skandal oder Offenbarung? Eine Provokation im Namen der Wahrheit. Die 120 Tage von Sodom. Symbolhaft, makaber, skandalös. Die Gewalt triumphiert über die Liebe. Man kann diesen Film hassen, aber man muss ihn gesehen haben. Urteilen Sie selbst über die 120 Tage von Sodom. Einer der aufsehenerregendsten Filme unserer Zeit. Here we have the 44 Specialist, which was the last of three movies in the Mark the Cop series, directed by Stelvio Massi, written by Dardano Sacchetti, and starring Franco Gaspari. Dardano uh, Sacchetti, who uh, wrote tons and tons also of Italian exploitation mm -hmm. films. In fact, anything that he didn't write or co-write, or uh, Tito Carpi probably did, and they also probably wrote a bunch of stuff together, too. Uh, Franco Gaspari plays police inspector Mark Terzi in uh, three movies, Mark the Narc or Mark the Cop, uh, the first one, was released in the United States by Cinema Shares as Blood, Sweat and Fear in 1975. 
Uh, Mark Shoots First played in the U.S. as Ultimatum in 1976. It was released through Interplanetary Pictures. This is the third one, Mark Strikes Back, uh, the export title being the 44 Specialist. Uh, the first two featured Lee J. Cobb as Benzi, the head of the Milan drug trade. Uh, I guess he gets wiped out uh, at the end of the second one. Uh, in this one we have John Saxon and John Steiner. Uh, and that's Herbert Fuchs there from Lady Frankenstein and numerous other, uh, hmm. other uh, Euro horror films. Uh, the star of this film, uh, Franco Gaspari, uh, unfortunately was paralyzed in a motorcycle accident in 1980 and uh, spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair uh, until his death in 1999. Uh, he was destined to be a, a bigger star, and unfortunately that put an end to it. Um, you can find some place for me to sleep first. <laughs> It was inevitable. It's your job to make your way to the top of the organization and pick up all the information you can on the way up. As quick as you can. Time's important. I saw uh, Blood, Sweat, and Fear on television, and I remember Ultimatum uh, would play on TV also. Sometimes. And you have uh, John Saxon, a familiar face from Italian films, um, who was, I believe, co-starred with John Steiner also in Tenebrae. Mm. Weren't they both in that one together? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, co-starred with Tony King in Cannibal Apocalypse, and uh, had quite a career going mm. in Italy for a while. Well, I mean, Saxon started in the mid-60s with uh, Mario Bava. In The Evil Eye. The Evil Eye, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, did things right through the 70s. They sure don't make them like this anymore, do they? <laughs> yeah, the thing I like about these films is they're very action-packed, a lot of fun, and they just cut the BS and just decide to have car chases in action, and they work very well. Much better than the piece of shit Michael Bay films. <laughs> what was interesting is that um, a lot of the Giallo films are really kind of police procedurals as well, but the Italian crime, the Polizione, I think they're called, are always very exciting and action-packed, and uh, a lot of the Gialli that concentrate on the police procedurals are kind of slow and uneventful. Here's a British uh, crime film, The Bullet Machine from 1969, originally titled Clegg after a lead actor Gilbert Wynn's character, Harry Clegg. This was directed by Lindsay Shantiff, who made Devil Doll and The Million Eyes of Sumuru, but specialized in sexy action espionage comedies like The Second Best Secret Agent in the Whole Wide World, Number One of the Secret Service, Big Zapper, uh, The Man from Sex, and so on. Um, he started uh, his sexy spy movies uh, with a character Charles Vine, uh, and then uh, that eventually became Charles Bind for three movies, and he did two movies about a, a female uh, action character named Harriet Zapper, and that was Big Zapper, and then he did a sequel, Zapper's Blade of Vengeance. Uh, Joseph Brenner Associates released this in 1973 in the U.S., uh, they acquired it in 72. Uh, the original title in the U.S. was The Bullet Machine. Uh, they then re-released it in 1975 as Harry and the Hookers, which is more more along the lines of a Lindsay Shantiff title than <laughs> uh, than The Bullet Machine. Uh, the Charles, I think the first Charles Vine, the, the one Charles Vine movie was the, the best secret agent in the whole wide world, uh, and then the Charles Bind movies were number one of the Secret Service, Man from Saxon, number one gun. And that's one of the lollipop girls again. 
She can suck your lollipop anytime. Oh, come on. Oh, please. Be uh, behave. <laughs> oh, behave. <laughs> and shortly you will be very dead. It's all in a day's work. He can take it. I met, well, this is the image that was used in the Harry and the Hookers uh, ads right here. Um, the, uh, the movie I mentioned a few minutes ago, the Shanta film Big Zapper, uh, I knew a projectionist in Syracuse who used to run movies at the drive-ins uh, in the area, and he asked me one, one time about uh, a film where a head is cut off and it starts talking. And I, for years I didn't know what movie he was referring to, and I, I found out that it was Big Zapper. This film is called, under this title, it's called Death Drive, but it's better known as Hitchhike. Uh, the film stars uh, David Hess, of course, trying to cash in on his last house on the left uh, fame. Uh, Franco Nero here plays a writer who uh, go, decides to go on a cross-country trip with his wife, and he's, uh, he, uh, you know, is kind of an alcoholic. Before the filming started, Franco Nero actually broke his arm, so that's why you see it in a sling, and they had to get Corinne Clory here to, who... Uh, is, is known for Story of O and of course, your hunter from the future, up yours, as mm -hmm. Mike loves to comment. And she had to drive the car, even though she really didn't know how to drive, uh, which is, <laughs> it was, was a challenge for her. Um, the film is supposed to be take place in uh, the Colorado Rockies, but they filmed it in Italy because this being an Italian production. Now the fight scene between Franco Nero and David Hess was pretty tough, where Franco Nero, even though with his broken hand or arm, hit David Hess so hard he broke his nose. Now David Hess was no stranger to the Italian uh, film market. Even though he hadn't made many Italian films uh, before this one, he did a lot of dubbing of uh, Italian movies and stuff. And uh, a few years later he would revisit his last house persona again with on uh, with R R uh, Diodato's uh, uh, house, on house on the Edge of the Park. Thank you very much. This is a very well-made film that has very, very nice locations. The Italian, uh, you know, mountains here uh, really do make a nice substitute for the Colorado Rockies. Um, the, the best of my knowledge, this film wasn't g given a release in the United States or a real release of anything. It got discovered through the bootleg market and uh, became sort of a, uh, you know, kind of a cult classic. It's, it, it has a lot of um, very violent scenes. In fact, there's a scene here where David Hess has his way with uh, Corey and Cleary here. That reminds me a lot of a scene from Alfredo Garcia with, mm -hmm. uh, you know... Uh, Christopherson. Christopherson's character, where you can't really tell if the wife is submitting or she's in shock. It's very well played. In fact, here's the fight, I believe, that uh, Franco Nero broke David Hess's nose. Um, it's a pretty tense movie. You know, there's a lot of Laos House on the Left rip-offs, but this is probably the best one. Hey, it has David Hess in it. Uh, another good one would be the Night Train Murders. In fact, here's the scene I was telling you about that reminds me a lot. And of course, as you know, that mm -hmm. adds a, a couple of points right there, having Marconi uh, add the music. That's a good score. It is a good score, and uh, I do recommend you check it out. It's, it's a very good movie. And by the way, David Hess just passed away, and we'd like to uh, say a little remembrance to him. So, rest in peace, David Hess. Or this. <laughs> if you do. Then join the man who is about to receive a very different glass eye. A tiny television camera. Here's Spy in Your Eye. 
was released uh, in 1965 by American International Pictures on a double bill Secret Agent Fireball. Uh, it stars Dana Andrews, Brett Halsey, and Pierre Angeli. Uh, and as the title suggests, there there is a uh, an eyeball, and we saw the eyeball earlier. Um, there's a an eyeball that's installed uh, in someone, and, and there's a camera in it, uh, so the Soviets can. Uh, it's a it, well, Soviet agent installs the camera, and there's a sound transmitter in the new eye, and uh, they use it to spy on the Americans. So. This sounds a lot similar to a movie I believe is called Death Watch with Harvey Keitel, but of course the Harvey Keitel version is played a lot more serious. Well, that's done as a documentary. Also, I think his the the eye is is put in there to to film a documentary. Here, it's a, a spy storyline. This was you know 1965, as they say, it's an outbonding thriller. This was the height of the James Bond craze. Well, here's uh, another James Bond-related, uh, you know, Bondian film, Kiss the Girls and Make Them Die. And what's with the banana? <laughs> uh, it was actually filmed in Rio de Janeiro, a lot of it. Uh, the, uh, this was released by Columbia. It was made in 66, released in early 67. It's a Dino De Laurentiis production directed by Henry Levin, who did a couple of the Matt Helm uh, similar James Bond-styled uh, adventure spy stories. Mike Connors is the star of this one. Uh, I think right before, uh, right before Mannix, before you got the, uh, the TV series Mannix. Uh, Raph Fallone is in it also. Uh, he's an industrialist who's going to use uh, ultrasonic waves from a satellite to sterilize all the men in the world. <laughs> so uh, he's gonna, uh, I think, I think he plans to sell the, the sterilizing gun to China. And he gets uh, 500 million in gold from China, uh, from a Chinese emissary, and then kills him. And uh, his, his plan is he's going to repopulate the world himself. <laughs> so it's, you know, tongue-in-cheek. Dorothy Provine turns up in it as a British agent. Uh, that was around the time uh, she had done... It's a mad, 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 mad world, and also uh, a really good film called uh, uh, Who's Minding the Mint? So she was mostly you know, known for comedies at that point. There's Mike Connors, Dorothy Provine, Raphalone, Margaret Lee, and Terry Thomas. And Dino De Laurentiis. Yep. Yeah, and it was, uh, I mentioned Henry Levin directed it. Kiss the girls and make them die. Now we have another uh, secret agent uh, spoof coming up here. This is The Last of the Secret Agents, also from 1966. This one was released by Paramount. Uh, this pile of dead bodies here, this is a scene in, in the opening uh, it's very funny. Um, this was a uh, this was a film starring Marty Allen and Steve Rossi, uh, popular comic team. Uh, they had done 44 appearances on the Ed Sullivan Show, uh, including three of the four appearances uh, that the Beatles uh, were on. Uh, 
they were together from 1957 to 1969. Uh, Nat King Cole brought them together originally as a team. Uh, I think in the mid-60s, uh, they, uh, they actually did a Batman and Robin spoof on, on vinyl. They did an LP called Batman and Reuben. <laughs> and, uh, and Bob Kane wrote the LP, uh, the, the Batman creator. Uh, and that's a funny <laughs> Burns his hand. Uh, with uh, Marty Allen playing Reuben, the Jewish boy wonder. Can I ask you, was there, are any of these funny? This is amusing. I, 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 I like this one. I haven't seen the other two that we did. I didn't see Kiss the Girls and Make Them Die, nor did I see Spy in Your Eye, which is not a funny, uh, not a funny movie. Though I do remember there used to be, I think Kiss the Girls and Make Them Die used to play on TV a lot. Mm. Maybe it was on the 430 movie. But I remember seeing the ads as a kid, and the ads made it out to be a serious film. Huh. I always thought it was like a serious action or even a horror film, the way you kiss the girls and make them die. And I'd always wanted to see it, and I never did. And I was kind of interested to find out it's actually a spoof. Hmm. That was uh, Nancy Sinatra, who sings the theme song also. And, of course, funny Nazis. Right. <laughs> yeah, they're very funny, those Nazis. Nancy Sinatra uh, had... or. Uh, yeah, she had just done The Wild Angels and uh, would go on to do the Elvis Presley movie uh, Speedway right after this. It looks like it was pretty lavish. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's amusing. I think the plot has something to do with art thieves uh, trying to steal the Venus de Milo. espionage ever be the same again? For those of you who are curious, find out. See The Last of the Secret Agents. Now here's something that kind of isn't much fun, really. This is all the crippled masters, right? Yeah, it's kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, handicap exploitation, should we say? This is a Taiwanese martial arts movie released by New Line Cinema. Uh, this was made in 79. New Line released it in July of 82. Uh, this was the first of three movies uh, with these characters. Uh, the second one being Crippled Heroes in 1980 uh, and Fighting Life in 1981. Uh, the characters in this one are uh, Lee Ho, who has his arms chopped off, and Tang, who gets his legs burned with acid, uh, they're playing by they're played by Frankie Shum and Jackie Khan, respectively. Yeah, here's um, the the burning scene. Yeah, it's pretty sadistic. It's it's a nasty little film. Yeah, these film this film became popular again back in the early '90s. Uh, after True Romance, there was a scene where they go to see a Sunny uh, a Sunny Chiba triple feature, and afterwards, New Line, I guess. They said, hey, we have these movies in the vault, let's release them. So released all the Sonny Chiba Street Fighter films. And on the, the trailer, every disc had a trailer for this film. And so they re-released this one and it kind of brought it back in the spotlight again and became kind of popular. Mm -hmm. It's a very sick movie. It's, it's, not, it's not like where, you know, handicapped people triumph and you're happy for them. It's just they really treat them like garbage. And uh, it, it's just a very sadistic movie. I, I really... Do not like this one. I mean, it's really hard to watch how the way these people are treated, you know, and especially the scenes with them 
where they're really deformed and they're trying to, you know, pour the acid on them. It, it just, it's, it's just very sickening. And as you can see, this trailer has the title, The Crippled Master. In America, it's The Crippled Masters. I think uh, Steve Pachowski in one of his early shock cinema reviews, uh, shock cinema issues reviewed this and he said something like, uh, here's a movie it's guaranteed to clear the room and uh, it'll make sure you, you don't get laid that night or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> not a good date film. Right, no, not a good date film. I think I might have seen this trailer. I went to, uh, there used to be a theater in Times Square that did uh, Kung Fu Triple Features. And a friend of mine and I went there uh, one Saturday afternoon. We got there about noon. Uh, just before they opened the big iron gate in front of the theater, they rolled the gate up. We walked into pitch darkness before the movies actually started, and I nearly sat on someone, uh, <laughs> you know, finding our way to seats. And, and you know, then we found empty seats sat in them. Uh, then the movie started, and we could see from the light of the screen that there were two or three people asleep in the theater who'd apparently been there all night. I believe this trailer was one of the ones we saw, or or a trailer for this is I think this, I think this is the export trailer. I'm not sure yeah. if it was an American trailer or the export that we this saw. This is this is the this is definitely the yeah. export trailer because of the the title of the Cripple Master and also yeah. the subtitles. Yeah. So I, well, I don't remember which trailer it was, but I because I, I remember seeing this trailer on the big screen, and that's the only possible place I probably could have seen it back at the time. Yeah, the New Line trailer used to be on all the the New Line videotapes. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, they when they re-released the Sonny Chibas and and uh, Fighting Black Kings and some of their other martial arts uh, releases. Yeah, I remember one of the movies we saw that afternoon was Enter the Deadly Dragon, mm. one of the three hundred Enter the Dragon ripoffs that uh, came out in the wake of Bruce Lee's film. I Which Bruce Lee was in it? Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee, Bruce Conan Lee, Bruce Lowe. I don't remember who the star was. I do remember the second or third lead was Casanova Wong. Oh yeah, yep. Uh, I can't remember who the, the lead actor was, but that name just kind of struck me back at the time. The uh, It's funny, because you you, uh, you told me what theater that was. It was the one near Nathan's, right? Yeah, it was, it was, it was right on either 40, right off 42nd or 43rd and 7th Avenue, or, yeah. or no, off, um, off Broadway. Off Broadway, on Broadway yeah. yeah, that was the Cine 43, which yeah. later became the Big Apple. It was a porn theater after that. That's right, yeah. yeah. But they used to have, for a while, they had the mm -hmm. Kung Fu triple features. I think we made it through about one and two-third films before we decided <laughs> we had to get out of there. And now from the ridiculous to the sublime, Shogun Assassin, uh, which, uh, as all fans know, is a conglomeration of two films in the Baby Cart series. Uh, which, which two exactly were those? The, the, the first, first one and the second one. Right. The exact titles escape me. Um, these were put together uh, by accredited American director Robert Houston, uh, who had started out as an actor using the name Bobby Houston, uh, under which name his first film was Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes. Uh, he did a few more movies as an actor, um, and then he went on to become a director with a kind of an eclectic career. He did a, uh, a absurd comedy called Bad Manners, in which he also played the character of Retard, a movie called Caged Fear, and an episode of Doogie Howser, M.D., and some documentaries. So uh, he, he had quite the varied career. I think the breakdown of this film actually is 12 minutes from the first movie, Lone Wolf and Cub, Sword of Vengeance, mm -hmm. and most of the second one, which was Baby Cart at the River Baby Sticks. Baby Cart at the River Sticks, right. Yeah, from 1972. Uh, the, the third film in the series, Baby Cart to Hades, was released first in the U.S. by Columbia in 1974, and that one we talked about in the uh, volume three. It was called Lightning Swords of Death. That was released quite a few years earlier. This came mm -hmm. out many years later. Uh, the little boy here, Daiguro, uh, the child actor, went on to have a decent career, but he had some legal problems later on down the road. Like father? Like father?
Phoenix's son meets the greatest team in the history of mass slaughter. Nothing on earth can match their infernal fury. Nothing on the screen can match this awesome spectacle of sword and sorcery. Yeah, uh, New World had to cut this to get an R rating, and uh, once they cut it they, they and got the R rating, they just put out the uncut version with the R rating, and then they were called out on it. Um, yeah, we were uh, we were talking before mm -hmm. I think about that, and uh, a lot of films like you know that R tag that was slapped on that uh, one trailer we saw. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the studios would slip out the uncut versions of their movies anyway. Uh, sometimes that would happen outside of Manhattan. Uh, I recall seeing uh, Joseph Zito's The Prowler in uh, Westchester, and it was fully uncut. All of Tom Savini's effects were intact, but people I know who had seen it in Manhattan said it was the caught R version. I guess they figured no one from the MPA would venture outside Manhattan to double check on that. Uh, but I believe that um, Jerry Gross was called on that for I Spit on Your Grave. I believe that was released in at least some places completely uncut when it had been cut and rated R. And I think uh, they got in trouble for that. Well, now wasn't Corman also doing the after the Shogun Assassin situation? Didn't he do that with um, Turkey Shoot? Um, when that, some theaters ran it unrated? I'm pretty sure yeah. when it was released as Escape 2000. Mm -hmm. I, I, that was also an R, but I believe that I saw an uncut version when I saw it in the theater because I saw it on DVD later uncut, and I think it was pretty much... I, I remember the exploding head, seeing mm -hmm. that on the big screen, so I'm pretty sure that was uncut too. Yeah, I've seen ad mats where some of them say, you know, no one under 17 is admitted you know, where it says, you know, due to the violence, and then there are others that have the R rating. I believe the poster when I saw it had a piece of tape with the R logo on it, taped over yeah. the no one under 17 will be admitted <laughs> part. You know, they stuck that on at the last minute, but still sent the uncut print to that particular mm -hmm. theater. Here's one last trivia note, by the way, for Shogun Assassin. Sandra Bernhardt plays one of the voices of the, uh, I believe, the uh, character. Yeah, and Lamont Johnson, the And Lamont Johnson, director. the director. Yeah. yeah, and Bobby Houston also takes a, a voice acting role in it, too. Here's Superman Chu, a, uh, a martial arts film from 1973. It uh, was acquired by Saul Freed of Capital Productions in 73 and released in 74. Uh, was, this was a Golden Harvest production. Um, it, what's interesting about this, well, you know, what's funny is in the trailer at the end, they say, rated R for righteous. <laughs> <laughs> righteous? Yeah. What the hell, righteous? It's a religious picture. <laughs> Uh, again, I got to give a plug to the uh, paperback film projector. There was a novelization from Ballantine Books and for we this. Both it. Yeah, um, it was written by Sean May Sullivan, who was actually Jerry Soule, who wrote the movies uh, Twelve Hours to Kill and Frankenstein Conquers the World. Oh, and Die Monster Die, Crimson Cult, and, and quite a few TV episodes. Uh, he wrote that under a pseudonym. Uh, and what's interesting about the book is that uh, Master Bong Su Han, uh, who you may remember from Trial of Billy Jack and as Dr. Klon in Kentucky Fried Movie, uh, does a little uh, intro for the book. All right, well, this brings us to Born Losers, which uh, was a huge box office success. In fact, I'm going to read you uh, Pauline's Kale's review. It wasn't well received by the, by the uh, critics, but by the audiences it definitely was. Pauline Kale. Featuring teenage girls being raped and tormented by rampaging ram sadistic motorcyclists with nicknames such as gangrene and crabs. This exploitation picture, uh, a mixture of vigilantism, 
paranoia, liberalism, and feminist consciousness may be the most amateurish bad movie that ever wound up on Variety's list of the highest grossing films of all time. Mm -hmm. Now, Tom Laughlin was uh, an actor who appeared in uh, a few films. In fact, one of the films that he appeared in was one of Robert Altman's first films, The Delinquents. Robert Altman didn't think he was much of an actor. Uh, but, you know, he wanted to become an actor. He wanted to continue to be an actor and director. So Tom, with his wife, who ran a Montessori school, decided to make a movie on their own. And uh, they ran out of money. They went to Samuel Z. Arkoff to see if they could raise funds to uh, finish the film. Samuel Z. Arkoff saw some potential in it and gave him $300,000 to uh, buy off the original investors. The film, of course, became a big hit, one of the highest grossing films ever in Variety. Um, Samuel Zarkoff agreed to put up the money for a sequel, and uh, he went and shot, uh, Tom Laughlin shot some footage, and he wasted all the money. So Arkoff decided to cut all his losses. Uh, Laughlin went to Fox, who had some interest, but they couldn't deal with him. It then went to Warner Brothers and became a huge hit. Despite falling off with, uh, out with Arkoff, uh, Tom asked AIP to distribute the trial of Billy Jack. But again, they had another uh, fight, and they uh, had a falling out again. At this time, Born Losers, which hadn't been taken out of circulation since it opened, was reissued with the, ta the tagline, The original Billy Jack is back. Laughlin wasn't too happy about this, so Laughlin filed a $5 million lawsuit against AIP. They settled, uh, AIP settled with him and indicated the film was a reissue. Laughlin had to pay AIP $2 million in damages, and then Laughlin went on to do Billy Jack Goes to Washington, and it bombed. Laughlin claimed it was due to politics, but it wasn't. Laughlin then tried to bring the character back in the early 80s, and he started filming The Return of Billy Jack, had an injury, uh, and the film was shut down and never resumed filming. Since then, Billy Jack, a.k.a. Tom Laughlin, is now run for president, and he has a website, billyjack.com. So, so check it out. Um, one more thing about The Born Losers. Uh, it was AIP's highest-grossing release until the Amityville Horror. Now we're on Hell's Angels on Wheels. Uh, what's interesting about uh, Hell's Angels on Wheels is that it, it uh, used real Hell's Angels, and uh, Joe Solomon, the producer of the film, uh, would just hire them on, uh, pay them off in beer, and uh, he had kind of an exclusive contract with them uh, for the next several films. I know he did, uh, he did one right after this called Angels from Hell that was a sequel. And what connects the two films is uh, Jack Starrett's character, uh, Lieutenant Bingham, or Sergeant Bingham. Um, he's Sergeant Bingham in Hell's Angels on Wheels, and uh, you know he turns up in Angels from Hell playing the same character. He's in The Born Losers, also playing a uh, police uh, figure, authority figure. Um, different, different character, though. And I've been working on a book uh, with the co-writer, Bob Plant, for a number of years uh, about the career of Jack Starrett. So we'll have a lot of information about Hell's Angels on Wheels and The Born Losers in that book whenever it is written and released. <laughs> so it's a long process. Uh, here we have uh, Devil's Angels, which is a sort of sequel to The Wild Angels, produced by that film's director, Roger Corman. Uh, this one stars John Cassavetes. Uh, this came out the same year that Cassavetes was in The Dirty Dozen, and uh, a year before he was in Rosemary's Baby. Uh, Cassavetes, of course, is c considered now to be the uh, 
the father of independent cinema because he was making his own films right around this time, uh, like Faces and then Husbands. This was produced uh, by Roger Corman, but also Burt Topper uh, was the co-producer. Daniel Haller directed the film, and it was written by Charles B. Griffith, who had done who had written The Wild Angels and uh, quite a few other Roger Corman films. Uh, Leo V. Gordon stars as the sher- uh, co-stars as the sheriff in, in this film, and you know Leo Gordon had been in quite a few Roger Corman films, including The Intruder, and uh, was also known as a writer. Uh, wrote, uh, among other things, uh, a Bird Eye Gordon film, I believe. The main thing is they kicked us out of the town for raping a girl we didn't even rape. We have some uh, music tracks also taken from the uh, the Wild Angels here. Beware of the devil's angel. The Skulls is the name of uh, John Cassavetti's biker gang. Mimsy Farmer is one of the co-stars. She later uh, went to Europe and made a number of movies. She was in uh, work with Dario Argento yep. in uh, Four mm-hmm. Flies on Grey Velvet. Didn't uh, Leo Gordon write the giant leeches? I think is that yeah. What it is? yeah. I, I think he did. Yeah. Yeah. And it was he wrote he wrote uh, all the all the loving couples. He didn't write. I mentioned. I said he had written a Bird Eye Gordon movie, but no. I think it was all the loving couples he wrote. Get out of their way if you can. Barney and Henry. So now we come to one of the more unusual biker films, uh, as you can see right here from the beginning of the trailer. Uh, this is called The Pink Angels, and uh, as the title might suggest, it's about a gay biker gang. Um, this movie was um, directed by Larry G. Brown, and it uh, features Tom Basham, who had uh, previously been in... Uh, oh yes, there's a, a line, uh, key line in the film, I won't exactly give away where, <laughs> but um, it, it's from a key scene, a rather uh, shocking scene that occurs in this film. Uh, but Larry G. Brown made a horror film called The Psychopath, uh, and Tom Basham starred in the title role in that. And in this one, you can also see uh, Dan Haggerty, the future of Grizzly Adams, as one of the Pink Angels. Michael Pataki. Uh, actually, uh, Dan Haggerty and Michael Pataki are the straight bikers. Oh, okay. That get done up in makeup, <clears throat> makeup, and everything. That's right. Yeah. 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 They they um, encounter some straight bikers and and transform them. Yeah. But the, uh, the Pink Angels, here's John Alderman, who I mentioned uh, does the voiceover <clears throat> for the Italian Stallion trailer. Um, and we have, uh, there's Basham. Uh, Bruce Kimball is one of the Pink Angels also. And what's interesting is you mentioned that uh, Dan Haggerty here plays a straight biker. Well, in the movie he made with Rob Schneider, which I believe is Beg Stan, he plays a gay biker. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, there's Haggerty right there. Yeah. All right. Uh, Jackson Boswick is in this movie also, and uh, right around a few years after this, he was on TV as Shazam. And he was in The Psychopath also, I believe. Yes, you're right. And uh, this was the uh, the only credited screenplay for Margaret McPherson, who I believe is probably one of the only women to have written a biker film during this period. It's not only beautiful, it's good. This went out through Crown International, and uh, they, they would <clears throat> run it on... Uh, Yep, there's Dan in yeah. his, uh, his new outfit. Yeah, and there's Mike Pataki. <laughs> <laughs> Looking quite tacky, I might add. Uh, Crown played this on triple and, and quadruple bills with some of their other biker films like William Griffey's Wild Rebels, uh, Wild Riders, uh, Side Hackers, Hellcats. 
must have startled some of the audiences after seeing two straight, right. pardon the expression, <laughs> biker films, and then that movie came up. Here's Werewolves on Wheels. Uh, Werewolf biker film. Which I mentioned uh, Joe Solomon a few minutes ago as the producer of Hell's Angels on Wheels. Uh, this was another uh, Solomon biker film. Uh, he did Hell's Angels on Wheels, Angels from Hell, Run Angel Run, The Losers, and this one. Also Evil Kid Evil, but it's not really a biker movie, but, uh, but it has motorcycles in it. Yeah, there are a few attempts in the 70s to cross over the horror and biker genres. The most popular one is probably Psychomania, which was made in Britain. Was also called the Death Wheelers. Stephen Oliver uh, was kind of a familiar face in biker movies. He was also in Angels from Hell, Savage Abduction, and The Runaways, which all had uh, biker subplots or, or um, major plots. Uh, he was supposed to be the uh, the lead in Run Angel Run, uh, Jack Starrett's film. He was announced as the star, uh, and the part eventually went to William Smith. Uh, Tom Skerritt was also considered. For the, for the role in that film. Uh, also starring in this film is Billy Gray, uh, who you might remember from Father Knows Best. Barry Maguire, who had the hit song Eve of Destruction. Donna Anderson from Count Yorga and Dream No Evil. And Severn Darden, the, uh, one of the founding members of Second City, who had been in President's Analyst and uh, quite a few films right up uh, into the 80s. Pretty spectacular stunt there. Mm-hmm. At least by fanfare. Yeah, of Joe Solomon's company. Here we have Dixie Dynamite, Lee Frost and Wes Bishop, starring Warren Oates and Christopher George. Yep. Uh, they had uh, Lee Frost had started directing Race with the Devil and was fired. Uh, Wes Bishop uh, had co-written that film and uh, was producing it. Uh, he stayed on the production and had a small part in the movie. Uh, he's in this movie as well. Uh, Warren Oates was the co-star of Race with the Devil, uh, for whatever reason, uh, returned to work with, with Lee Frost and Wes Bishop on this one. Uh, this one uh, was a pretty big hit, but I, uh, for Dimension Pictures, I think Lee Frost and Wes Bishop ended up uh, suing Dimension to, uh, to get their money on it. Um, one of these guys here is Steve McQueen, I think doubling Warren Oates. Uh, McQueen and Oates were friends. And also, uh, Bud Eakins, who handled the stunts on this film, uh, was a, a great motorcycle stunt driver and knew McQueen very well. So uh, McQueen, at this point in his career and his life, uh, wasn't really working and said that he would do uh, stunt riding for this movie. So he did a couple of days and uh, got paid you know, very little. He just did it because he loved riding motorcycles. Music was performed by Dwayne Eddy in the Mike Curb congregate, congregation. <laughs> also, Dorsey Burnett uh, did some music for this as well. These two actresses I don't remember ever seeing in anything else. Uh, but this used to always play on television, so I saw it a bunch of times on TV. Like in the afternoon, I would come home from school, and, and one of the New York stations would be running it you know, at 4 o'clock. There's a spectacular dummy death right here, uh, exploding Wes Bishop goes, yep, there we go. <laughs> so I just want to put in a plug for, uh, for the DestructibleMan.com website, which is uh, dedicated to 
dummy deaths and uh, we have webisodes as well so uh, go to the go to the facebook fan page and check out destructibleman.com we'll handle that dummy death and many others here's terence hill and mr billion jonathan kaplan film that went out through 20th century fox beginning in march of 1977 stunt coordinator walter scott did a lot of uh, interesting stunts here. Um, the best one being a car that flies through the open box car of a moving there train. It goes, there yeah. it is. Uh, locations for this film include Rome, uh, California, the Grand Canyon. This was Terrence Hill's American debut. Uh, he later showed up in March or Die, which we discussed in an earlier volume. Uh, in this one, he plays a, an Italian mechanic who inherits a million dollar inheritance from his uncle who's a financier. He has 20 days to collect and decides to travel from New York to San Francisco to collect. Uh, Jackie Gleason is his greedy uncle's financial manager who wants power of attorney to take the money away from him. David Speed. Here's Terrence Hill again. Uh, Super Fuzz. Super Fuzz. This is actually, this is an Italian film uh, shot in Miami. With a wonderful theme song. Yep. <laughs> Avco Embassy, which had helped make Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer stars in the U.S. when they released They Call Me Trinity. Trinity is still my name and All the Way Boys in 1971, 72, and 73, respectively, uh, released this in 1981. Uh, a lot of uh, Hill's Italian films were being seen in the U.S. In addition to those Avco Embassy titles, uh, UA released Man of the East and Crime Busters. Universal released My Name is Nobody. Columbia released Watch Out, We're Mad. Paramount released Ace High. AIP put out God Forgives I Don't. Uh, Film Ventures released Boot Hill. Uh, most of those co-starred Hill and Spencer. Uh, Warner Brothers, years later on video, put out some others, including Go For It, Odds and Evens, and Miami Super Cops. And here's the first indication you get that Ernest Borgnine co-stars in this mm -hmm. film. Yeah. Mark Lawrence is in it also, and I believe it was Joanne Drew's last film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, directed by Sergio Corbucci, who did uh, a bunch of Hills films, I believe. Here's Sunset Cove, uh, which is one of Al Adamson's non-independent international films. He did this for Cal-Am, uh, the same company that made Toolbox Murders. And uh, this is fairly low budget, you know, being an Al Adamson film. Uh, shows a little more skin than his usual films. And John, the, uh, I guess he relocated to California for this one. Yeah. Well, he did. Where did he do most of his stuff? Now he shot. Um, well, he shot all over. I mean, he did some in Utah. Oh, we had some brief balls. Yeah. There, <laughs> yeah. Um, Capitol Reef in Utah. I know he shot a couple of films there, and his father used to make films there. Mm -hmm. um, there's uh, some familiar faces in this one: John Duran, uh, and then some. Uh, well, there's J.B. Larson, who had been in Al Adamson's film Cinderella 2000. John Carradine shows up at the end, uh, and he, he had done quite a few of Adamson's films. Uh, this one, I think, was released on video uh, in England. It never, never got a U.S. video release, as far as I know. Uh, but I talked to Sam Sherman a couple of years ago, and he said that this is on his list. It's one of the uh, movies that Al made that he doesn't own but he he wants to buy it because he said you know he, he really feels like he should own all of al's films so he's been 
going after the rights to some of the ones that, that were done outside of Independent International, like this one and Black Samurai. And Carnival Magic finally came out recently, yes. I think. So yep. there's mm -hmm. hope for this one yet. <laughs> and this must be Van Nuys Boulevard, this yes. This is indeed. Yep. Another Crown International title. This one, uh, I think, was the last film made uh, by Newton Red Jacobs, the founder of Crown International, uh, who had started the company 20 years before this, uh, in 1959. Uh, he died right around 79 or 80, uh, so I, I think this is his last production. Uh, Bill Adler, who we saw earlier in Crown's film Pom Pom Girls, is the lead in this one. I think it was his only lead. Uh, he'd done smaller you know, supporting roles in things like Switchblade Sisters and The Van, which is another Crown title. Uh, this one, uh, he plays a character named Bobby, which uh, is the name that's usually used for the leads in the, the Crown teen films. Um, Matt Latanzi was Bobby in My Tudor. James Dalton was Bobby in Malibu Beach. Stuart Getz was Bobby in The Van. Uh, that was uh, a rule that Marilyn Tenzer, uh, daughter of Red Jacobs, uh, who was running Crown at the time, uh, she, she just had this rule that the, the young men who starred in her teen comedies had to be named Bobby. Was there any reason. particular reason for that? Mm, uh, she, I'm sure, had a reason. boyfriend but, in high school or something? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but uh, you know, we saw a jail earlier, and, and I mentioned that that was the same jail that was used in uh, the Jamal Fanaka movies. Um, a lot of like this... a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> it was four hours ago. Uh, there's a freeway that you see here. Uh, it was actually the uh, 118 freeway, uh, which was being built at the time. Uh, Chips filmed there also uh, quite a bit around this time, late 70s. And the editor of this was George Bowers, uh, who was Joe, Joseph Rubin's usual editor and uh, did, did a bunch of stuff for Crown International as a director, including The Hearse and, uh, and also My Tudor. And The Beach Girls. Yeah. That was him, wasn't it? Um, he edited that, right? Right, like, yeah. yeah. But he, he actually directed My Tutor in the Hearst. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but George, I, yeah. I remember Beach Girls was, uh, that movie used to play on cable literally every half hour mm. for a while back in the day. Mm. And I remember I used to see, <clears throat> I got those credits practically memorized. Now, didn't he edit uh, <clears throat> didn't, uh, Roll Bounce also? I'm not sure. I think he did. That's why it looks like a 70s film. Remember when roller skating was a lonely sport? The skaters were discreet. The skates were obsolete. And the background had no beat. All right, guys, we're about to, we're about to wrap this up. So uh, let's thank everybody for uh, watching. Again, check out uh, our pages. I'm it's of the host of Cinephiles, youtube.com forward slash Cinephiles, and avmaniacs.com. Mike, you are? Uh, Fangoria.com. The uh, paperback film projector. Okay, good. All right, well, this will bring us to our last trailer of the evening. Uh, this is the a movie, uh, Skate Town USA, which stars with an early appearance of Patrick Swayze. The opening scene that you just saw in the movie, The Little Flashback, does not even appear in the movie. Um, the film was directed by William H. Levy, who directed a film that... I really like it's really schlocky and terrible, but it's called Wham Bam Thank You Spaceman. <laughs> um, this film has not really been seen on home video, and it's not a surprise because it's mostly likely due to the soundtrack. The soundtrack in this film is, which will become up in a minute, is pretty impressive, Chris, isn't it? Yeah, it has a Very lot sweet. of uh, 
Yes. And Ron Palillo from Up Your welcome, Nose and a Rubber Hose. <laughs> welcome back, Cotter. Uh, this was uh, the story for this was uh, written by Lauren Dreyfus, who also appears in the movie. He's Richard Dreyfus's older brother. Uh, he produced the film as well, and later wrote Detective School Dropouts with David Landsberg and co-starred in the film with Landsberg. And this was uh, the script was uh, written or co-written by Nick Castle, uh, yes. who is a, a associate of John Carpenter's from film school. And this was his first screenplay credit on a on a feature film. Uh, of course, he went on to collaborate with Carpenter as the killer in Halloween. A co-writer on Escape from New York, etc., uh, and went on to a directing career of his own later on. I should also add that uh, William A. Levy, the director, uh, also directed Blackenstein mm-hmm. and uh, a few other films, and was one of the credited writers on the all-time awful classic Night Patrol. <laughs> uh, I don't think she's credited, but Dorothy Stratton is in this film as well. We saw Billy Barty. Uh, we mentioned Ron Palillo, also Flip Wilson, Ruth Buzzy, and here they are. Yeah, here's here's the all-star cast. Maureen yeah. McCormick is in there somewhere. Yeah, from the Brady Bunch. Introducing Patrick Swayze. Dave Mason does a few songs, too. Uh, Dave Mason from Traffic, uh, who wrote uh, Feeling All Right. And there's some of the music that held this movie up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, thank you for listening to the 40 Century Forever Blu-ray. Thank you very much. Good night.